And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe spinning around the sun at 18 and a half miles per second. Where does the time go? Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, tonight we're going to talk about flying helicopters on Mars and much, much more. Oh, yes, yes, much, much more. Um, a little while ago, I was sent a sketch from uh, Joseph Farrell, and the uh, um, caption of his email was um, plagiarism. And I thought, oh, my God, who's accusing who now? You know, this kind of thing. So I open it up, and there he has this gorgeous image of ingenuity on Mars. And above it, he's got this sketch from Leonardo da Vinci, and they're almost identical. I mean, it gave me chills. So I'm not sure that Kinthi will be able to put it up for the show. Uh, We might make it a um, like 2A because we have an item number two in my items where we actually have the imagery of flying the helicopter. So it might be a nice 2A um, if you can get in, you know, because we've had a lot of a lot of um, traffic, and sometimes when the traffic is terrific, uh, none of us can get in. So we have to always be careful that we don't, you know, kind of log out and try to log back in during a show because Radio with Pictures is increasingly popular, which, of course, is exactly the way it should be. Okay, let me let me touch on a couple of items before we get into the heart of our conversation. We have a full crew tonight. I will introduce them at the appropriate time. But let me go to news items because something has just happened that I wanted to make note of. In fact, I, it happened two or three days ago, and I made a note in, a, in, in my notebook to, to make sure I led the news tonight with it. After over 100 years, the United States has officially recognized the Armenian Genocide. Um, Dr. Richard Spence and I, our resident historian, have talked about this a couple of times uh, during the Ottoman Empire, um, the literal genocide of the Armenians, and the whole turgid story is in that item number one with a lot of background. Turkey, of course, is furious at for even calling it a genocide, but I think this is a harbinger of things to come. Again, more and more is falling out of the closet. And this has been a long time in coming, and I wanted to pay appropriate um, respect to it because, remember, I told Rick that the first time I'd ever heard of the Armenian Genocide was not in school, not in college. It was on an episode of the original Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry had put it in the script, and he was um, inundated with with, – Uh, gratitude from the Armenian community, I believe there's one in Los Angeles, who were quite astonished that mainstream television, NBC, in 1968, um, 67, somewhere in that time frame, had actually made note of this as an historical atrocity that has never been recognized by us until now. And I'm just using that as kind of an indicator. There's a lot more interesting things going on. And as you'll hear during this program, we're going to talk about a couple of them. 
that may surprise an awful lot of people. And we will put it on the record and we'll see whether this political prediction that I'm going to make during the show, in fact, comes true. We will see. Um, for those of you who are wondering what I'm talking about, what you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on that, and that will take you to our home page. The banner tonight at the very top says, uh, Flying on Mars. Um, what about the atmosphere? And it has the entire EM imaging team listed there. Click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Right under the banner there, you will see fast links to items. Richard, Ron, Timothy, and Ruggiero is also going to be posted there shortly. Uh, click on my items. That takes you just down a few uh, scroll lengths to Radio with Pictures. My items, number one, was our recognition of the Armenian genocide. Number two, as you may or may not have been aware, NASA succeeded this week twice. Uh, once on Sunday night, I, of course, stayed up all night after the show watching the uh, uh, what was going on. And it was rather entertaining and very intriguing. And, and uh, you know, watching uh, Mimi uh, Ayung, who is the uh, uh, Ingenuity uh, Program Manager, you know, kind of go bonkers is really kind of fun. You know, I look at all these people, all these incredible blessed nerds who are, of course, at the cutting edge of civilization. Anything that has benefited most other people has started out as a cockeyed, harebrained idea in some nerd's mind. And then through a random walk process of politics and finance and perseverance, that was intended, um, these ideas eventually make their way into society, into civilization, and they benefit so many people. And I'm looking at all this incredible enthusiasm among the Ingenuity team there at JPL. And I cannot square in my own mind the incongruity of their honest, unabashed enthusiasm, passion, and love for what they're doing, what, what mastery of forces on another world over 100 million miles away they have pulled off again with this idea that they work for an agency which has for over half a century been dedicated to lying to the American taxpayer about a whole bunch of stuff. And it's so incongruous. I just cannot wrap my mind because it's obvious these people know nothing of the political chicanery going on above them at what we used to call the level of the suits. And their expressions of pure joy at making the impossible look almost easy. I mean, come on. Flying an autonomous little helicopter on the planet Mars completely by digital remote control with no control from Earth. It's all done with the programming on board and a processor which is 100 times faster than anything NASA has ever put into space before. So it can correct the perturbations of the flight at something like 500 times per second. And all of this, the wonders of the digital universe and people like Bill Gates and Stephen Jobs and, you know, these icons of a world where because of the digitization of everything 
and the accessibility of everything. The truth, Mr. Mulder, is out there, provided you have the proper filters to get through the screens and the distractions and the outright censorship to find it. So we're going to talk a bit tonight about Mars and the atmosphere and uh, flying on Mars and the absence of, of dust. That came up uh, earlier in the week. You know, where was all the dust? Well, I have a dust video to show you, which is very, very revealing of perseverance launching of little ingenuity for the first flight on Mars of a self-propelled, self-controlled, uh, autonomous flight, helicopter flight. Anyway, uh, item number two, if you click on that, that's the actual, all the frames, something like <clears throat> 1,400, 1,500 frames put together, sized by a member of the um, <clears throat> Reddit Perseverance citizen scientist team. It's amazing how a lot of the, you know, fitting together of all this stuff is being done by amateurs and not by NASA. Anyway, this is a full frame version of the of the flight of ingenuity, flight one. There's item number two in your copious spare time. Take a look because it is really, really remarkable when you think this is all being done with literally no control from Earth. I mean, with the time lag and speed of light, how could there be? Item number three, at the same time that NASA and JPL and the Perseverance mission were making history with Ingenuity's first successful flight, they also activated another technological demonstration, which is the so-called MOXIE instrument, which stands for basically making oxygen on Mars. What you do is you use... Uh, electricity, which comes from the nuclear power source of Percy, and you run it through catalyzers, and you take the atmosphere of Mars, which is overwhelmingly carbon dioxide, and you split it apart, and you get rid of the carbon monoxide, and you're left with oxygen, and apparently this is producing on the order of several grams per hour, which would last an astronaut, you know, a couple, three hours. So um, the tech demo apparently was very successful. It's item number three. Go and take a, take a careful read because this, of course, is the technology required to uh, uh, ultimately live a self-sustained colonization effort on the red planet. And I presume that a certain gentleman named Musk, who had another very successful uh, demonstration of SpaceX capability this week. Um, you know that we have crew two now, four more astronauts taken up by the um, uh, Falcon 9 rocket and the Dragon Endeavor spacecraft, both of which were recycled from the previous uh, crew one mission uh, about a year ago. <clears throat> the booster flew and then flew back and landed on the drone ship in the um, um, Atlantic, and the spacecraft Endeavor was refurbished and flown again as the spacecraft to carry the second uh, NASA crew on a Crew Dragon mission to the International Space Station. And that all took place in the last couple, three days, lost a lot of sleep looking at all this stuff. Fortunately, there was nothing of, of shall we say, tremendous import to report, no problems, no cataclysms, no, no issues. Um, 
again, it, it, it looks routine, but it's not, because spaceflight is not yet routine. But the work on the space station in preparation for the Artemis mission, and of course we mentioned last week that um, SpaceX and Elon Musk had received the contract from NASA to be part of the uh, to be the lander on the moon development team. They're going to use Starship, which is supposed to fly again, uh, Starship uh, 15, in the next few days from uh, Texas, and we'll see whether the problems that have plagued the development very visibly uh, have been fixed. We're assured they have. Well, we will find out. And of course, I hearken back to the beginning of the space program when most of the imagery coming from Cape Canaveral, which in those days was film, good old motion picture film, 16 millimeter, shown either in briefings or on the news networks, <clears throat> on the evening news, uh, showed rockets going up and coming down and blowing up and spinning. And so people tend to have very short memories historically, and no one realizes what went into the development of the spaceflight we now take so much for granted. And yes, Musk and his team is an outlier, but they're pushing the envelope. They're definitely wanting to be an outlier. And so um, we may or may not see success in the next couple, three flights, but uh, eventually we know success will uh, will occur because there's a very very large group of very, very bright and dedicated people. Let's hear it for the nerds again who are advancing the vanguard of civilization both on and off the world. So if you want to go now to item number four, <clears throat> this is again one of those uh, Reddit citizen scientists who took every frame, realized that the clock, that the rate at which NASA had presented its video was wrong probably by design. And so he put every frame together as a standard movie. So you see all the little motions of ingenuity as it's hovering there against the background ridge and sand dunes. And it's just kind of a thing of beauty to behold. And uh, for those of you who are really, really sharp eyed, you might want to take a look at the background during the video. There are things occurring in the background that as we're going to talk about a little later, should not be there. And I think are harbingers of another Emily Dickinson moment where NASA's showing us stuff. They're just not telling us what they're showing us, hoping, praying, wishing, maybe not, that we will figure it out. There's an awful lot of that going on. Anyway, <clears throat> item number five. Uh, remember, while all this is going on on the surface of Mars, the Perseverance mission, the Ingenuity helicopter, uh, press conferences in the middle of the night, flying on another world for the first time in the modern era, the Chinese are upstairs in orbit, circling Mars every couple hours, waiting, waiting, waiting for what? Well, we may find out. I'm going to venture some ideas later in the show. I think I may have figured out part of the political puzzle, and if it comes true, it will be amazing, and it will also advance so many other things. Anyway, item number four. While they're waiting, um, they announced that they have named their Mars rover after a traditional Chinese fire god. And let me get the pronunciation correct here. It's Zurong. 
a traditional fire god. They announced this, uh, um, you know, a few hours ago um, in, you know, Beijing time. It was actually Friday, our time. Um, And they're planning to land sometime, we have heard, in either May, uh, middle May, maybe late May. Um, The rover title, which uh, is, as I said, uh, named after a traditional fire god, is in fact very much in keeping with the Chinese name for Mars itself, which is Ho Zing, or Fire Star. So there is a continuity there. I have a suspicion that uh, naming the rover after a Chinese fire god is an homage to, shall we say, kind of hidden history. Um, Anyway, be that as it may. Um, What I want to do now is I want to bring on uh, the rest of the gang who's here with us this morning, the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. Uh, We've got uh, Ron Gerbron, who was our generalist. We're going to really test his generalism tonight because we're going to delve in part into the remarkable etymology. Etymology? No, no. Um, Itology? Uh, Philology. You know, that's that's what it is. In other words, the derivation of words and language and names and all that. Um, He's found a very interesting link between Elon Musk and things we are thinking about on the planet Mars. And we will kind of relate that a little later in the morning. Um, another member of our team here is Andrew Curry, who, of course, is our resident uh, artist. He is, uh, uh, has a degree in fine art. He's been an art uh, uh, therapist. He's currently working as a designer and illustrator for major and minor companies built in Canada. And here in the United States, he works a lot with film and television in Hollywood and, and um, has been doing really yeoman service uh, when it comes to the uh, uh, artistic aspects of these missions. Um, we have Ruggiero with us, uh, Carlos Ruggiero, who is from Britain, who is a, um, a, a physical therapist who did a very interesting sketch of this femur the Curiosity rover found at um, Gale Crater many, a couple, three years ago, and actually pointed out specifically point by point the connections of the ligaments and all that. It, and that, that thing is not, you know, a piece of rock. But of course, if you have a human sized femur, uh, I think it's a femur, I, I always forget whether it's a, you know, femur or another leg bone, the fact is there had to be a body attached to it. And that implies a whole civilization of bodies. And we're going to kind of, you know, talk about the implications of that uh, as we go through the morning. Uh, Keith Morgan is here. You know, uh, he is uh, creator, discoverer of the so-called Morgan Curve, which is this uh, loggy curve at Sidonia that connects a, a series of massive pyramids. And, of course, he's been looking at the perseverance imagery. And um, he pointed out uh, last week that you don't land on another planet and take a white balance image. The cameras are basically attuned to see what's there. And as you will hear later on this morning, the um, first image we got, first color image from Perseverance, had this extraordinary color view of Mars. And then everything went to hell in a handbasket, and the tapioca returned, and the butterscotch, and the weird green cast, and all of this 
But the first images that came down revealed once again that Mars has, in fact, a blue sky. So why are people trying to change it in NASA? What's the game there? Well, we will we'll probably spend some time this morning talking about all that. So let me open my receiver here and welcome one and all. Have I forgotten anyone? Hello. Morning. Well, if they're not here, how could they speak up and say that you forgot them? That's an old joke. <laughs> anyway, so okay, that, 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 that was Ron. Um, the first thing I wanted to get all your takes on was um, the the helicopter, because that is a very interesting uh, set of questions and imponderables. So who, who wants to start with the flight of Ingenuity? Actually, two flights now. And well, definitely- I was looking at the uh, the video. But I'm trying to see if there's anything else moving out there because all the stuff that we usually get from these rovers is stills. And I think there's stuff out there that's actually moving that uh, they don't want us to see. So I was just kind of looking around the area to see if I saw anything moving. Anybody see anything move out there? Okay, we're hearing an echo. I don't know where that delay echo is coming from. Sorry, that was me. Oh, okay. I haven't seen anything yet, but I'm going to have to rewatch the video. Okay. What, what other things do you see moving? Um, geez, is it, is it well, it, it, it's kind of interesting that Keith should raise that question because that's exactly what we're going to talk about in another 10 minutes or so. So, okay. Anybody else? Um, can't say I've seen anything extra. Okay. Andrew? Well, I'm curious about that dust too, Richard. That was my thing. Um, it's amazing. I mean, everything you said about the technology is unbelievable, but it looks like a little flea on the landscape. It's just so unimpressive to me. But I, it, the, the technology is impressive. Don't get me wrong about that. But the uh, uh, the actual, I don't know. I, I'm Maybe I'm just not as blown away as everybody else at this point. Mm. Maybe I've seen too many drones at Christmas time handed out to kids. I don't know. Well, the fact that it's taking place where it is. So, all right, let me let me kind of get into it. If you go to item number six in my radio with pictures, which is right after item number five, which is a Chinese naming the rover after <clears throat> the Chinese fire god, item number six is a still that was the first color still image sent by Ingenuity to Perseverance and then uplinked um, to uh, the Deep Space Network and posted yesterday. It's from not the first flight. This is from the second flight that was conducted on Thursday. And if you look at that, you'll see a whole bunch of interesting stuff, um, not the least of which is the shadow of the little helicopter at the very bottom of the frame. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little sliver of sky, which of course is blue. And there's an awful lot of tracks running around. And it's, it's so interesting because when you saw this, Andrew, you had the immediate reaction that I had, which was, yeah, it looks like foundations of an ancient structure, Richard. And I mean, I, 
sort of playfully said it's like a, an old Roman bathhouse, you know, with with um, sections and 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 maybe even almost roundish, you know, uh, foundational section. Yeah, on know, the upper right hand corner toward yeah. the toward the blue sky, which is tilted because this is a wide angle lens. Um, um, there is definitely something. There's so much organization, yes, and, and exactly. what's so amazing to me is you've got these guys looking at these photographs, and now there's aerials. There, of course, is MRO, the, the spacecraft, which has this super telescope that looks down, that takes pictures in color of Mars, looking straight down, and all of this organization, and nobody makes mention of it. They just talk about rocks. Well, these rocks are square. They're rectangular. They're arrayed in linear progressions. They've got, they're arrayed at right angles. They're arrayed in patterns at right angles. There's so much organization. If I did not know that that photograph, number six, taken hovering 16, 17 feet above Mars, I would think it was a drone flown by an archaeologist taking pictures of some place in Iraq or Pakistan or some desert where there was an ancient civilization and all that's left now <clears throat> are the few bare bones of the former foundations. Yes, Richard, it does remind me actually of the um, excavations we see um, in London when uh, you know we've got the old Roman Roman baths, etc. Mm. You know they're broken and crumbled, but uh, they look represented in that way. And actually, some weeks back, I'd sent you an email with uh, the first Percy images that uh, there was like regular blocks, but they were going around in an arc. And uh, the first thing I noticed was like, hey, that kind of looks very similar to old Greek and Roman uh, ruins. My, my. So, mm. Ron, didn't you have a kind of a comparison? If we go to your images, which is the fast links under the uh, banner at the top of the guest page, click on Ron, that will take you to his um, items. I'm looking, I'm looking. Oh, there, is this, is this uh, number, number eight? Uh, I thought it was number six. Maybe something got moved around. No, six is, Are you talking? six is the temple. I was, I okay. was expecting you would have I'm, a comparison. Uh, six. Oh, that. Oh, six is that. What that is is the. Uh, it's a simple channel frame. It's the luminance or the lightness uh, from a. I was splitting the picture, analyzing it, and I noticed that the black and white image. You know, you just. That's all that is. It's just a grayscale image of it. Um, had a lot more detail visible. You see how clearly it shows. You know, faces and whatever. Compared now this the, is from uh, other ones. Well, which which camera are we talking about? Uh, this is the pan cam. Um, you mean mass cam? From what? Mass cam. Sorry, one of the mass cam panoramas. Ah, okay, okay. The, sa the same one that the other picture uh, right below it is from. Um, the um, hold on, Ron. Aren't we talking foundations right now? Oh, foundations. Well, that's what I thought, and that's why. That's uh, sorry. I'm. That's why I asked him which one he meant. Well, you, there you, should be a. There is eight one that says foundations, but it's not the comparison with ingenuity that I had thought. You, one of the structures that Kinthea had worked on, 
for the presidential briefing? Oh, no, briefing? that was just something that was in the file. You were, I heard, actually, this came, you didn't even know I was there. You were trading emails with uh, Andrew last night, and I saw you were discussing ruins. Ah. And I thought, oh, oh, well, I, I've, I already put away okay. a picture that has so, exactly the kind of exa- cross-example they wanted. So, so that happens to be church lady, never mind. We'll go back to my item number six. So, okay. um, and if you click on it and kind of scroll around, you can really see, you know, like up in the midfield, there's that little rectilinear arrangement. They're all the same size. They're all in a line. There's a there's a right angle, and then there's another line at right angles. In other words, there's so much organization. It's like, what are they are they trying to to sell to us? And I, you know. Anyway, that's that's one of the first things. Remember, my model has been that the reason they keep downplaying the helicopter and stressing how difficult it is and how tenuous it is and it looks like a toy, is be- and they keep saying it's doing no science, no science. It's like I think, as Shakespeare said, they do protest too much. Because look at that image. Look at number six. Look at how incredibly useful it would be if it acted as a scout for perseverance. If it flew even a thousand feet ahead, or planning on the next couple of flights, I think uh, four or five, to fly it out over three thousand feet away and then bring it back. I mean, the amount of aerial reconnaissance you can do if this thing can stay in the air more than you know a few seconds would be extraordinary. And the more they keep emphasizing, oh, it's not a scientific tool, the more suspicious I'm getting because again, NASA has a track record. Remember, when I was first asked to join CBS and covered going to the moon, um, I kept hearing this, uh, NASA means never a straight answer. And that was from seasoned professionals in the journalism craft back then. And, of course, they didn't know how much NASA had been hiding of what's really out there. So I just have a feeling that this little Ingenuity helicopter is playing a much more critical role than we have been, shall we say, um, uh, given given privy to. And the more they downplay it, the more I'm thinking it has a real important role. Thoughts? Uh, well, you just said it. They trivialized it. And they keep doing it over and over and over again. It's it's like overselling. What was it? Tim, Tim Saunders is going to join us in the third hour. Tim said something about how it looked like it was clunky. And then, Andrew, you said that, well, that's all about packaging. And if you don't want someone to take something seriously, you make it look like a toy. Yeah, and that's what I meant. I'm not downplaying this technology. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's just it it's all made to look really Goofy. And I mean, this shot, your number six, Richard, you can even, if people zoom in, you know, you can toggle it closer, right? And yep. you can see in the corners, it's, it's rounded because of the lens, but you can see plainly laid out foundations. When this thing goes up, goodness, we're going to get a panorama view of a cityscape so ancient. I mean, that's what sort of, inspi- well, anyways, yeah, that's the part that I agree with. It's like when this thing goes up, if it does and gets going, how are they going to cover this up? It's going to be so obvious. Well, the next flight is scheduled for tomorrow morning, pre-dawn again, because oh. remember, Mars rotates every 29, 24 hours, 39 minutes. 
and the Earth in 24 hours. So a rotation of Earth laps Mars, so the two clocks get out of synchronization. So as you go from day to day and week to week, the two clocks move apart. And so anybody on Mars time is going to be changing their rising and setting, which they've done for the first couple of months of this mission. Um, so now the uh, flying will take place on Mars at something like uh, 7 or 8 uh, Eastern time, I believe, on Sunday. Uh, when we get off the air, there's going to be another flight. And then a few hours later, they'll dump all the data and they'll make an announcement. And there's supposed to be this one coming up, the one number three, is supposed to be like 50 meters, which is, you know, almost 200 feet uh, north and back and then land on the same little uh, area of ground they've, they've marked out as the safe helipad because there's not a lot of rocks there. What I'm intrigued with on, on this mission, if you, if, if you look at our banner tonight, which is the black and white nav camera, on the, and the, on the bottom of that little rectangular mylar covered box of electronics, camera looking straight down that does the navigating and lets them kind of move around the terrain and get back to home plate and home base and whatever. The helicopter is caught as a shadow with the sun directly above ingenuity and the blades are really, really sharp. If you look at the shadow of ingenuity on the color frame, the blades obviously are in motion and the shutter speed was much lower. And I'm wondering why, because the, the light sensitivity between color cameras and black and white cameras is nil, you know, state of the art. Now all cameras are basically amazing. So why was the shutter speed so slow allowing you to see the literal motion of the blades on the color image. Anybody got any ideas? Not me. Not a one. Hmm. Okay. Um, maybe when Tim joins us, he'll have some thoughts. He he said he did have some thoughts on the helicopter. So let's move on to my number six. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, wait, go ahead. wait, Richard. Before you go, uh, you mentioned something in one of our exchanges this week about the width of the Perseverance track and how, and I, I, I want you to bring this this up to the people because if people are going, oh come on, it's just rocks buried. No, this stuff is human size. Like it, a, a human being could walk in these areas quite comfortably. Can you explain the the width of the yeah, tracks and how that? You, you can obviously see Perseverance tracks there, the little ribbed, darker areas of the ground where the dust is lifted up, and you know the under what's under the dust is revealed. Uh, the width of the tires, the width of the wheels is 16 inches. I spent a lot of time looking this up, and it's not easy. The, the specifications on the, on the Curiosity wheels was readily available, but finding the, the parameters of the Perseverance wheels, other than they had been changed, and the aluminum had made, been made thicker, and the um, little uh, groove, not the grooves, the... Uh, what would you call those the flanges uh, on the surface of the of the wheels, uh, which are wavy, uh, have been designed to resist rocks better and to dig into sand better and all that. Um, it was really hard to finally come up with a number, and the only reason I came up with it is because Emily Lakadawala, who used to be the uh, planetary gal from the 
Planetary Society and wrote amazing pieces, very well researched. Uh, of course, she thinks our stuff is all nuts, but that doesn't um, stop me from citing her when she posted on Perseverance the parameters nobody else had posted, including the width of the wheels on Percy is 16 inches. Now, the, the spacing between the wheels, which is the width of the rover itself, is nine feet. So given those two parameters, look at the tire tracks, look at how they get smaller into the distance, and Perseverance is just above the frame. The copter tipped a little bit. That's why we see the shadow, so it didn't get quite to the horizon. So I presume that they will correct that in their autonomous programming for the next flight on um, Sunday, and we'll get Perseverance as seen from Ingenuity. Um, but anyway, you can see the amount of area is covered, and then given the fact that you've got 16-inch and 9-foot scaling, this is the foundations of human size structures on Mars. And it blows me away that no one's talking about it officially in NASA. It's like they're obviously oblivious to the incredible organization. Remember, this is supposed to be the bottom of a lake with you know, rapid turbidity currents and inflows of water coming from the highlands and a, a drainage area on the other side of the crater, 30 miles wide. <clears throat> so the currents, if all the stuff we're seeing there is, is caused by currents moving rocks around, or even if it's just volcanoes or meteor impacts throwing secondary ejecta, why are they all lined up? And why are they all roughly the same size? Doesn't anybody but us out here in the peanut gallery notice that NASA's sitting in the middle of an ancient buried city? Uh, Rich, uh, sorry to bother you, but uh, we kind of blew by the break. See, Coming nobody's watching. <laughs> it's okay. Nobody's watching. <laughs> so well, um, we're, we're interested in this. So we're kind of paying attention, and I was yes. engrossed in it. Yeah, so. I was too. <laughs> I'd say leave the break out. Don't worry. Oh about no, 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 no. We'll, we'll 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 pick it up at the top of the hour. Anyway, going to number seven. This problem of flying on Mars gets back to how can you fly on a planet? Yeah, the, the gravity is one-third. But the real problem with flying is the atmosphere. It's aerodynamics. It's, you know, Bernoulli's principles. It's all the aerodynamic stuff that we've been taught, you know, from high school on. And to do any flying with a wing or a prop or a helicopter blade, you've got to have sufficient atmosphere. And, of course, NASA's gone to great lengths to tell us that the atmosphere on Mars is equivalent to 100,000 feet over the Earth. So here again is a side-by-side -side comparison in number seven in my radio with pictures showing on the left a uh, Daredevil uh, Red Bull-sponsored pilot who a few years ago jumped out of a balloon at 70-some thousand feet. On the right is the first color wide-angle hazard cam image from Perseverance after the landing. You'll notice the image on the right, the Percy image, the wonderful blue sky, the reddish soil, the various rocks, the shadow of Perseverance, because it was late afternoon when they actually landed. The image on the left, that's the one taken at 73,000 feet. 
Notice the sky is black, pitch black. That little tiny band of blue hugging the Earth's horizon as Baumgartner, the, the, the daredevil pilot, is about to jump out and free fall, you know, 70,000 feet before he pops a parachute. And he gets a speed going of something like 600 miles an hour because the lack of air resistance, free fall or terminal velocity in the lower atmosphere is around 150, 180 miles an hour. So you can tell there's not much air at that altitude if you can free fall at 600 miles an hour, which is exceeding the speed of sound at sea level. That's just straight down. And he was tumbling and twisting and drug shoots, you know, had to stabilize all these problems comparing stratosphere on earth with surface on Mars, something does not compute. And I know we can look at numbers and cite statistics and engineering measurements and, you know, NASA's data on occultations and all this till the cows come home. How do you get around the idea that on the surface of Mars, the atmosphere looks, just looks like it's on the surface of the earth at 15 pounds per square inch, not one one hundredth the air at 100,000 feet over the earth. Again, anybody have thoughts on this? How do we reconcile this? Richard, I don't have any thoughts on this, the science of, um, of the, the coloring you're seeing, but I will make a little statement uh, that came to my mind about the, uh, the, the Percy image. And that is that if I'm talking about consistencies, so um, with regards to the color. So if you're looking at the color of the worlds and say, well, what, what's their you know, consistent color on Earth and then the color of all the rocks, and then you look at the sky, it, it means that um, with like the filtering, that's like a, a true, true image, you know, because uh, often we see the, the sky is orange, obviously on Mars, and now it's blue. So my point would be to anyone who's uh, like not scientifically minded is like, well, why, why is it so blue? And why is everything so consistent? Um, do you get my point? Mm-hmm. Um, well, look at item number eight, because I want to get into this now. Um, number eight is a raw set of frames put together by, again, uh, NASA, Caltech, JPL. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they, they did a, a, um, uh, negative. That's why at the bottom of the frame, they're freeze framed the way YouTube does it. Uh, you see that little white geometry. That's um, ingenuity before it lifted off. And this is this is a side by side comparison. And you click on it, and you'll see left and right. Um, the left image is totally devoid of color, and it's devoid of luminance. It's basically almost black and white. The image on the right is the natural color, which has been enhanced by this technique to show the dust when ingenuity lifts off, hovers, and then settles back down. And you can see, um, you run it several times, it lifts off, it hovers, it comes back down. When it lifts off, there's a wonderful puff of dust, which you can see now Now it's doing it again. Um, the dust is not uniform. It seems to be stratified. From to my eye, it, it's whirling in little vortices the way convection currents 
in deserts on earth cause dust to rise. It doesn't rise laminarly, in other words, as a uniform um, layer. It rises in these convection little mini tornadoes that uh, are only similar in terms of name. They're nowhere near the velocities. And you can see the incredibly contrast-stretched image on the left compared to the uh, color image on the right, which is the color that they send these back in. You'll notice that this blue sky has gone away now, but yeah, there is this, this interesting um, ringing, this, this regular geometry in the sky, again, mm -hmm. looking away from the sun, which I think is an artifact of the dome that comes out um, kind of inadvertently when you enhance the, the, uh, the image. And uh, it stopped again. Let me let me run it again. Okay, for me. Um, I guess from two weeks ago, Holger he was uh, saying more on the lines of um, these things are uh, just like the background noise that you'd see um, from the from the camera. Yeah, like, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to see it, what you. It, you know. it, it makes no sense because we're not talking about very very low light levels where the computer has to kind of pull up, you know. A few photons to make an image we're talking broad daylight on a planet where the sunlight is basically uh, equivalent to a bright bright cloudy day on earth because of the increasing distance from the Sun you know the Sun has a lot of light to play with so there should be no ringing there should be no um, uh, digital distortion uh, step functions and on the left side of the comparative frame you can see this ellipticity really well it mirrors as you're going to hear when tim joins us the reconstructed geometry of the lower parts of the dome that uh, mr saunders has been working on now for the past couple three weeks but there's something else i want you to focus on don't look just at the dust uh ron i think you had something you wanted to say on this don't look just at the oh, dust go ahead yeah, on the dust. Yeah, the uh, I'm. Are you absolutely sure that you've got a hundred percent? I'm not saying otherwise. Uh, the of the veracity of that uh, that video that's black and white on the one side, and um, you know the color one on the other one mm -hmm. uh, that um, shows that this because those currents, the there isn't enough. According to them, there isn't enough air there. To suspend the dust that way exactly and I, I asked so I mean I am not you know the world's greatest expert on that anyway uh, no seriously on um, atmospherics but it there's a threshold below which nothing's going to happen I mean you know think of the moon photos uh, you know the dust just falls bud. right and so I don't know how it's getting pushed around you know, you in order to have the wind pushing the dust around, um, there has to be a little more of it. Plus, it's laminated. You can see the laminations. You know, and that's not just caused by the rotor blades. And that means that there are temperature differentials. Exactly. And it seems to it seems to me that at one percent of Earth, of Earth's uh, sea, uh, sea level atmosphere, that wouldn't be dense enough for the con uh, the convection you'd need to get the heat 
up to the next layer. If you, you create if, the laminations there. If you look at the right-hand image, the background is twinkling. It's scintillating. It's yeah. shimmering, which, of course, is accentuated to the max with the very pushed, highly enhanced version on the left in black and white, which not only shows the dust, but it shows these laminations, these whirling vortices, the fact that you've got a wind blowing from the left rather smartly, that you've got the little helicopter responding to the wind, correcting for being blown off course as it's constantly looking at that camera image straight down and comparing it with its map so we can get back to landing exactly where it took off. All of this, particularly if you look at the details on the left, you'll see little blinking bright spots and they 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 appear and disappear, but they say again. We could hear. Oh, Cynthia's not muted. Oh, so sorry. I thought you were talking to me. Okay. Anyway, you can see that the the bright spots in in the version on the left where you pushed, uh, actually JPL has pushed the contrast to the max. They appear and disappear in the same location, which means it's not noise. It's the scintillation of specular reflections from objects on the surface. We'll call them rocks for the time being. And they, they move in and out as the air currents, the convective motions are causing the various objects to be refracted and distorted when you look at it through a reasonably dense atmosphere. I mean, we got all this circumstantial evidence that the atmosphere of Mars is at least 10 times denser at the level of the Lowellian uh, perceptions of what Mars atmosphere was like back in the 1890s and the early 1900s with very primitive telescopic technology. Then, of course, we had the flyby of Mariner 4 from NASA in 1965 of Mars. And then we have the canonical pronouncements, oh, the Martian atmosphere is one one hundredth as dense. All the subsequent missions have reinforced that. They've carried meteorological instruments, which have dutifully said it's one one hundredth, one one hundredth. And yet when you look at all of this data from the brightness of the sky, the color of the sky, which comes from not dust, but from molecules, Turns out that most molecules as gases are about the same size, so they scatter blue light. So planetary atmospheres, if you can see them, if they're dense enough to be seen, from Venus out to Pluto, they all are blue if they're caused by molecular scattering. Uh, Richard? Richard? Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead, Tim. Oh, Ruggiero, that's yeah. It's a simple yeah. question, which might might I might be able to shed some light on the atmosphere here. So, regards to the density and the dust, and then the lift of the, the vehicle. I was thinking, if someone can do the mass on the, the size of the blades, then the weight of the object, and then the available lift, because there needs to be a consistency. And if there's not, you wouldn't get the lift of the object uh, with blades that size if the atmosphere was not dense enough. Hmm. Okay. Get, get the point. So you need. Yeah, but they. 
if the atmosphere was really, you know, what what it's described as, you would make, I think you'd need bigger blades for, for that object to take off. Hmm. Well, all of that should be available as part of NASA's, um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, technical specifications. The problem mm-hmm. is when you match what they claim uh, we're seeing with what we're actually seeing, they're not the same. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's my point. So how do what? how 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 do we you know reconcile this? Well, they're not telling us the truth <laughs> once again. Yeah, Richard. You know, you made a point that. Uh, actually reinforces the model that I have that you don't like, which is that they have just been kind of stuck with that minimal ga- gas um, model since the beginning because somebody wrote it down that way. And it was easier just to finesse around it. See, I, know I don't, I don't that, buy that. Like I, do, I do not buy that for a microsecond. You know why? Well, then what about the color of the sky? Why would they bother to go through all that fuss about – the uh, trying to convince everybody that the sky there is red to the point that there have been movies where they spent excessive amounts of money on beautiful matte paintings to show how red the sky would be on Mars when they knew better. Well, I, I, Andrew, this is where I need to call upon your expertise, okay? Because I believe it has to do with the idea in branding, marketing, advertising, you know, appealing to mass audiences. There are two things you can do. You can create a program that will make something irresistible so everybody runs out and buys it, right? Yeah. And you have same psyops, the same psychological branding and you know, uh, careful creativity can go in to making something look so disagreeable that nobody wants to buy it. It's like the old, the old expression, um, will, the, will, 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 will the dog like the dog food? And in politics, you know, that's a standard cliche that the dog doesn't like the dog food, meaning does not like the candidate because he or she is being marketed wrong. NASA for 50 years, Andrew, has marketed Mars, the Elton John, not the kind of place to raise your kids. Visually, in terms of what they've said about it, in terms of stressing that it's, you know, you can't breathe the air, you would die of asphyxiation, et cetera, et cetera. So the, it, it's been the entire broad front program has been aimed at us to make Mars look, feel, taste, smell, and by rumor appear totally uninhabitable. Yeah, and uninviting. It's just always – I mean Holger's images of Viking, that was stunning <laughs> from two weeks ago. No, I'm serious. It, yeah. Look, one of the things here, Richard, I wanted to add to this. When um, Ingenuity lands, that dust pops out uh, to the right again from some sort of prevailing consistent breeze that is continuous the entire time this thing is floating – not floating, hovering in the air. And one more thing about uh, – which just shows that this is – like literally, if you were standing on that landscape, you'd feel a light breeze. Well, it'd be on your – spacesuit but you know what i mean you you you, if you could take your spacesuit off and if you could handle the atmosphere it'd be on your face right you could feel it a a little afternoon breeze but the other thing about that background unless there's something wrong with with this camera 
that deep background, like we go from a, a you know, like the ridge line being pretty sharp, you know, like there's a consistency right from the Perseverance's camera right out to that first ridge. And the whole background, like the mountainous background at the, at the crater rim, literally looks like it's, we're seeing it through plastic. Like it's, it's either a really dense atmosphere back there mm-hmm. or there's something else. Or it's a glass. Yes. The remaining shard of glass. Yeah, I, I, I would vote for the scattering of glass. Let me point you to number nine before we have a break here. I want to blow past the second break. Click on number nine. This is a desert showing what scintillation, atmospheric convection currents, mirage-producing environments, uh, you know, high heat in the desert, colder air, stratification, vortices. Just click on that and then go back to item number eight and click on that, and you'll see Mars is behaving much more like an Earth type atmosphere meaning it's uh, not the density of earth's atmosphere but it's maybe one tenth which would be like up in the andes or at the top of the rockies or whatever because the atmosphere doesn't go you know down linearly as you go up in altitude there's a thing called a scale height so it's 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 much more earth-like it's it's lowellian it's one of andrew's favorite references it's Barsoom. It's Edgar Rice Burroughs kind of atmosphere. It's the kind of atmosphere on a planet which is old and tired and has lost a lot, but still has something left. And you look at these comparisons, you know, in the ingenuity imagery showing the dust. I mean, they had to do some image processing. But what I found was interesting is that, you know, various people were complaining when they saw the first video that there was no dust. And then lo and behold, NASA comes out with this enhanced version themselves showing the dust. And again, if they had were faking it, why would they fake an image of enhanced dust where the dust is behaving like dust behaves on the earth as opposed to on their synthetic 50 years plus polished branding of a desolate inhabitable Mars. The things do not fit together. Okay, we're not going to miss our break now. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning to Numerous Dimension, just go to the homepage of uh, the other side of midnight for tonight's guest, the guest page. Scroll down, you'll see their bios there. Ron and Keith and Kinthea and Ruggiero and Andrew and uh, Tim Saunders is joining us at the top of the third hour. You are on the other side of midnight, and yes, that is the sound of Lawrence of Arabia, which has a stunning scintillation heat rising over the desert scene. Uh, You might want to take a look at that. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return tomorrow.
One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core And they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, They just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government's Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Anetta, and Kintia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. back everyone this Saturday night April 24th 2021 we're talking again tonight about the planet Mars and the 
redolent mysteries and the inconsistencies in what NASA says about the environment and the imagery and the other data it's now releasing. I mean, it really seems, guys and gals, as if they all carry around a little copy of Emily Dickinson's poetry. And if they are forced to tell us the truth, they keep telling it slant. So we have to figure it out, that we have to read between the lines. We have to watch the dust clouds moving, moving across the surface of a planet where the atmosphere is supposed to be one one hundred thousandths of the air we are breathing now. So why, why are there these inconsistencies? I think, as we talked about just before the break, that in fact the uh, plan has been to make Mars look as distasteful, as uninhabitable, as desolate, so that uh, nobody really is very excited about uh, uh, going there or staying there. Of course, the guy who's messed all this up has been um, uh, Elon Musk. Um, I, I have. I want to get into the, you know, move from the atmosphere into something even more intriguing, which is what is the, what was this dome we've all been looking at now for several weeks with a variety of evidence and different different disciplines, different techniques, different ways of looking at the imagery, even you know looking or listening to the sound of the wheels on the surface, all of which is pointing us in the direction that there is this extraordinary ancient dome, now, of course, in shreds and tatters and a pale vestige of itself, except over toward the east. But what was it there to do? And obviously, I believe it was there to protect something um, under the dome in the Jezero crater. And we're going to talk about that uh, in the next few minutes. But before we leave the subject of the atmosphere, Anybody have any any final comments? Yes, I do, Richard. Your comment about making this this planet look unappealing. You know, one of the big features from the Brookings report when NASA first started to go, uh, well, before they started their sort of space travels and exploration was a very, very big focus on children. Lots of focus in that report about how children grow up with you know NASA going into space etc and and to monitor children and their and how they would react to it. it's very very interesting to read that section you show an atmosphere that looks like earth and a landscape that looks familiar to people living in New Mexico or Arizona or even Egypt and you're going to have a lot of children growing up wanting to make very definite strides towards that planet so i think this goes way back to basically hiring a very bad PR company for NASA to deliver Mars in a very unpleasant you know, Christmas gift or a very bad Christmas sweater. So you're basically mm-hmm. saying it's been deliberate. For 50 years, yes. they've been trying to you know, stamp out burning ducks, trying to keep anybody yep. from getting really excited, yet they keep talking about the fuel of NASA, the reason NASA exists, the the resin decra for, you know, $19.5 billion of funding every year, give or take, has been the search for life outside of Earth 
the most Earth-like planet, all these caveats notwithstanding, is Mars. So it's it's almost like, Andrew, they've had one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. And does this not imply two conflicting groups within the agency that have somewhat equal power and influence and capability to execute their plans, but their plans are at loggerheads, they're at, at, at odds with each other, and it's never it's never been resolved in over half a century. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just on on this point, I think I brought this up. I think it might have been a couple of years ago. Um, there was a an award presented to a an advertising firm. They they specialized in computer graphics, I think, in New York. And they had made this bus, the school bus, um, and they took children into the school bus and they sort of drove them along and it looked like, oh, they're going on a field trip. Suddenly, the windows literally transformed into what they really were and they were screens and the kids were basically looked like they were driving through um, you know, a, Mars along the, the surface and they had this, this amazing presentation and that company won a huge award for that. So you get these little spikes now and then, Richard, where they 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 infuse um, somebody infuses a moment of of awe, and then it's then it's just sort of put away again. It's put to bed. It, it was a there, there's a beautiful video. People can look it up on YouTube. It's it's just it's called the Mars Journey in the Bus or something like. I forget what it is. I don't know if you guys remember that. So, I yeah, remember I, I, this I, was a few years ago. I remember there was a big yeah. deal about it, and it was oh, yeah. it, it again. There's this this war. What I don't understand is in bureaucracies, and some of us are more familiar with working them than others, how do you maintain two diametrically opposed points of view, use money to sell them, to create advertising, to create <clears throat> a, a kind of a you know narrative, uh, and they're, they're at loggerheads. They, no side either wins or loses. It's like all it does is confuse people. And the people who are pro Mars and pro Let's Go and Let's Colonize and you know there could be life out there, <clears throat> their message is diluted terribly by the other side, which is oh it's dead, it's lifeless, there's nothing but rocks and craters and radiation, and the skies are this awful butterscotch you know uh, color and you know there's there's it, Mars is not the kind of place to raise your kids. How does this dichotomy exist? for year after year and decade after decade, and nobody steps in at a higher level and says, this is our message. Well, it happens in most countries with two political parties <laughs> who are always yeah. divisive, and, but have, sort of have the same goal in mind to do something good for the people. I don't know. It right happens on Wall Street. Yeah. It's, no. you, I don't know if it's human nature. Yeah. I don't know. No, I said it happens on Wall Street. It's money. What does a what does a rich let's just pick one and nobody and not think of anyone of uh, a uh, political donor they donate to both sides mm. and so I think they've been promoting both options because until the water boils uh, you can go either way and they have infinite power and infinite money so to speak so I think the the very capitalized vase behind the curtain. Uh, yeah, they support both views. Okay, if it goes this way, good. Okay, if it goes that way, this is how we deal with it. And uh, I don't, I don't see a contradiction. I, I, 
Like I said, it's just like politics. Or well, a wait, 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 wait a minute. When you say it, it, it goes both ways, if, if the folks behind the curtain have infinite money and control, I'm going to talk a lot about this tomorrow night <clears throat> with my guest who's going to be talking about Masonic influences and all of those rumors for centuries, you know, small group people running the world. If they are a small group running the world, why don't they have a definite plan? And that's the plan and nothing else is allowed. You're acting, Ron, like there's some kind of free will and some market decision where ultimately people get to vote which future, which Mars they want. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Not exactly. I'm saying that those people that are so rich and so powerful, uh, so to speak, uh, what they want to be is rich and powerful. They don't care what happens as long as they are in charge. But how does the color really, of the atmosphere and the density of the air you can't breathe make a tinker's dam in any of that? Well, this is where I said it, it's a, it kind of supports that model that I have, that the business about the atmosphere actually being denser than they originally said it was, was it was like filling out a form. You know, as you said, Mariner 4 gets there and they start and there, of course, there are telescopic uh, observations and measurements. And there's Lowell and his um, compatriots even back then making decisions about how dense the atmosphere was. And but they said, OK, we need to make this place look as inhospitable as possible, because if people really get a closer look with better technology a little down the road, they're going to see all the ruins and things like that. And a whole bunch of odd things will open up. So maybe we can disinterest them. So, but that has not happened. We've had we've had a constant drumbeat. No, because for 50 years, NASA's held out the Holy Grail, which is why they get funding every year. We're going to find life someday. We're going to find life. Life is out there. Life is everywhere. This is our resin d'etre. It hasn't gone away. And now we've got these amazing images from Perseverance, and now Ingenuity. And all these incongruities of a much more favorable place for Musk to put down, you know, his colonies. I mean, really, it's not linear. If the atmosphere of Mars is 10 times denser than we've been told, the engineering hurdles in, in front of a private enterprise colonizing Mars, regardless of governments, becomes a hundred, a thousand times easier than if the Mars that we've been sold is the Mars of reality. And all the data is telling us, all this various circumstantial evidence is telling us, Beverly, that the Mars we've been given is not the Mars that exists. It's very different and much more inviting if you do just a few little things. Heck, I wouldn't even be surprised if they've been lying about the percentage of oxygen. Yeah, well, now, does that make the uh, rather infamous opening sequence in that movie the martian with matt damon uh does that make a misdirection or an error you know where he gets blown over and knocked out by the wind well it's not an error because it was was a huge plot point at which the entire uh, film you know novel and then film revolved because he had to be stranded and everybody had to think he was dead and you could not do that unless there was a big storm and of course the Mars NASA says exists, that storm would be impossible. The Mars that I think exists, that kind of a storm could in fact take place. 
Why would you allow, if you're trying to keep everybody, Andrew, this is back in your court, why would you allow Mm. enormous monies to be invested in a movie which tells you the truth when you don't want people to know the truth? In other words, these paradoxes, these inconsistencies, these left-right, up-down, gas, you know, brake pedal, nothing makes sense in a rational, controlled universe where people with infinite money and infinite power can control exactly the reality that you think you're living. Unless they don't want us part of the part of the team going forward, or, or they've got to establish something first so that they get first dibs. I don't know. It's uh, first to the finish line, maybe. I, have you I guys know. ever? Wait, I, I'm I'm sorry, but have have you guys ever seen one of those videos? that are produced by prisoners of war. You know, I mean, they're famous going back into the Vietnam days when those things started circulating. The uh, person is sitting there, they're reading the script the way they're supposed to read it so that they don't get summarily beheaded on the spot. And they're blinking out a different message with their eyes in Morse code. Yeah, that was that. that, or, Or making signs. It's happened a thousand times. Well, I'm saying that's what these things are. It's you're at, they're like sig- the signaling of prisoners of war, saying this is what's really going on, but yeah, we can't but wait, ever wait, wait, wait. talk the, about it directly. The, the one instance you're talking about that I'm familiar with is Commander Booker and the Pueblo and North Korea taking our spy ship, which apparently wanted inside the whatever mile limit North Korea was declaring. Because this, this occurred just before I went to CBS in 68, so I was paying very close attention to the news division of CBS to see what I was getting myself into. So I'm familiar with, you know, Booker standing there with his crew and they're reading this prepared propaganda and they're blinking Morse code with their eyes saying, these are all lies and BS. Okay. It's very different when you're spending a hundred million dollars on a movie, which undercuts the entire propaganda disinformation of NASA regarding the real environment of Mars. That amount of money, if the, if the control was absolute, would not get spent. And yet it is spent, and that's the paradox that I just cannot reconcile. The same as with all these incredibly excited people jumping up and down at JPL the other morning when their little helicopter flew, because you knew that every one of those people believed firmly they had created this incredible technological miracle flying at the density equivalent of 100,000 feet, whereas if the atmosphere is 10 times denser, which I think is why they had the problems in getting her launched in the first place, the computer said, wait a minute, the props are running into more air than I was told it should be running into, and they recycled everything for several days till they sorted that out. You've got these people like in, in little hothouses where they don't know that the very agency they work for has been doing exactly the opposite of what they think it's been doing. Yeah, but now they do. But do they? You have, at, you have added another 50, uh, that, that circumstance has added another 50 people or 50 people or so to the list of people that are read in on this stuff. But are they? Because tried. they're only looking at graphs and charts, like that little altimeter graph that I was going to put up that, that we don't have time to put up. It shows you know, it lifting off, hovering in a certain altitude, um, 10 feet, and then setting back down that's a graph that could be produced in a computer in a back room in pasadena it doesn't have to come from mars 
if you're dependent on your instruments, if you're a pilot, remember the first thing they say in, in, in pilot training is trust your instruments. Don't look out the window because of inner ear things and all that. You don't know if you're flying upside down. So if you're trusting yes. your instruments and your instruments have been snookered by a small group from the beginning, from 1965, the Folks that actually know the real environment are only the engineers that have to build the hardware to enter the atmosphere of Mars. That's EDL, entry, descent, and landing. And the engineers who had to build the helicopter to perform on a range of conditions where all you have to do is change the prop speed and the same propeller design that could function at 100,000 feet over Earth could function at 14,000 feet over Earth by simply changing the rotor speed, which is a computer algorithm, which is done hands-off, and no one is sitting there and looking and measuring the rotation rate because even the cameras, the video that's taken, can be jiggered so you don't get an accurate reflection of so many frames per second, you know, the stroboscopic effect and all that, which goes back to why is the color helicopter shadow on the Ingenuity image why are the blades blurred and on the black and white they're crystal clear and knife sharp was this an error was this a leak or is this just because systems that get so big eventually something gets lost in translation i think they just can't say anything but they can do whatever they want hmm all right. We, I mean, I'd, I'd, I, I, one last thing I'd say in the te- in the area of blinking, uh, that you called me this afternoon to tell me about the new shots from the SuperCam that were targeting a certain location there for for uh, per, for perseverance. Yeah. And I think that that's an I think that's an indication of friendly. I think that NASA said, oh, they're interested in this thing. Let's take some pictures of it because you made a big deal about it last week. It's on the ta- it's on the table for tonight. I don't know if well, I made a big deal of the dome. Place. Remember, guys, and then suddenly we get mm-hmm. you know two days of hundreds of images of the entire sky from Perseverance, See? which is not hap- well. But again, it's it's so Dickinsonian. Okay, let let us move on because time yeah. is is, is fugiting. I want to talk about the rest of the show. What's under the dome? Why was a dome necessary? Because obviously, Mars, if you didn't have atmospheric deficiencies, you wouldn't need domes, you wouldn't need arcologies, you could live outside in the open air like we do here. So obviously, there's some things about Mars that are different. And at what density do you create a high-tech civilization that has to live in a greenhouse as opposed to the ambient environment? I think that's what we're seeing at Yezero, which was the environment of Mars allow the Lowell model of aging planet, losing atmosphere, losing atmosphere. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. At some point, you have to go to glass domes for living, for agriculture, for keeping civilization alive, which means you have these oases connected by some kind of transportation system, dome to dome to dome. And that may be where the so-called Lowellian canals came from. They're not water. They were transportation channels along with water, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, lots of speculation. I want to go to item number 10 now in my, in my uh, uh, radio with pictures items. 
because this is a MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not. It's, it's Mars Express looking down on Mars, taking color imagery, which appears to be a little more, shall we say, realistic than the NASA imagery. And I rotated the image. North usually is on images as straight up. In this case, north is to the left, south is to the right, and east is straight up because this mirrors the geometry of item number 11, which is someone, again, uh, a member of the citizen scientists groups of these various chat rooms that are presenting data and processing data from Perseverance uh, apart from what NASA is doing. Item number 11 posted by a guy named Marty um, is the um, assemblage of all those black and white color frames from the uh, lander vision system arrayed as a panorama, mosaic then arrayed as a panorama and tinted the color of the so-called GoPro uh, downward looking camera on Perseverance that was photographing in color of the ground as the spacecraft was floating to the surface on the parachute. In this view, which had an algorithm which kind of stretched out the things below and to the sides of this 90 degree uh, camera lensing system, if you look in the lower right, if you click on that and look in the lower right, you'll see what I'm going to show you now in item number 12. Click on number 12. This is a view of a set of remarkable geometrically arranged structures, arcologies, pyramids, a lot of linear um, geometric looking stuff looking like you know, modern suburbs gone to hell in a handbasket. You see curvilinear features over on the left that actually could be elevated highways that have appropriate shadowing and all that. In other words, over against, if you go back now to item number um, uh, 11, over against the, the, the sides of the crater, the rim of the crater, or the edges of the dome, there are these rather remarkable arrays, geometric arrays of, of structures, massive structures, including on number 13, when you look toward the south, you see at the base of that rim, that's that linear high feature, that's the rim of the crater, that's the rim of Jezero. On the right-hand side, you'll see two massive geometric structures on the surface next to the rim, on the left-hand side, you see a lot of kind of shattered bluish and pinkish stuff. That's the upper levels of the dome as this little spacecraft was falling down through the levels and taking these pictures. And if you uh, turn the MRO imagery one more time so that now south is at the top and north is at the bottom and west is to the right and east is to the left, if you in large number 14, you'll see that those objects I showed you in 13, which were very dimly seen in that descent uh, lander vision system camera system, are much more in focus now on the Mars Express European spacecraft photographing Mars looking straight down. And you'll notice that they appear to be more geometric complexes. They're not maces. They are huge collapsing 
artificial structures, either pyramids or arcologies. Uh, they're kind of like uh, uh, one and the same. And uh, we're actually getting close on time, so let me do this. Let me let me pause what I'm going to say, and we will pick this up when we return. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and don't go away because there's an amazing surprise to be revealed in this line of reasoning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guests are the EM Imaging Team, and we're going to be talking about what's under the dome in a great deal of surprise when we return. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. everyone to this another Mars edition of the other side of midnight on Saturday night this is uh, April 24th 2021 my guests are the enterprise mission imaging team with a few um, consultants like Ruggiero uh, who did that brilliant sketch of the uh, femur on a place of course where such things should not exist so I want to go back to what I was saying at the top of the uh, uh, hour because um, what we've got here, if you go back to uh, radio with pictures, let me do this, okay, and you're all looking now at item number 14. If you rotate the Mars Express image so that it's upside down, north is at the bottom, south is at the top, you can see the crater rim. That's that uh, randomly looking bright tannish 
uh, sweeping curve uh, from the left to the right of the image. And below that, you have these various obviously uh, geometric structures. Um, they look to be deformed. They appear to be uh, in ruin. They appear to be very, very old. And um, I looked at them and I thought to myself, why do they look familiar? And then it hit me. So you want to go now to number 15. We're going to take the uh, objects on the left, I'm sorry, on the right first. I've now reversed it. So north is now at the top, uh, south is at the bottom. The crater rim is now at the bottom with that major crater on the rim, uh, kind of like over on the right-hand side. And three of these structures, which are obviously structures because they're same size, they're spacing, they're outlined by platforms, there's very complex rectilinear geometry all around them. They reminded me overwhelmingly of the object on the right, which is a satellite imagery of the three main pyramids on the Giza Plateau in Egypt. Now, I've only done one thing to the object on the right. I reversed the orientation because although the structures on the left in Yezero reminded me of Giza, in fact, the geometry was 180 degrees wrong, kind of like it was a mirror image of what Giza someday was to become. Okay, get out of that. Now you want to go down to 16. We talked about this last week when I was talking with um, Stephen Myers. He's not a big fan of the Orion <clears throat> Giza pyramid layout. The uh, The photo on the right is a, is a sketch, a professional sketch from, I forget what, archaeological journal. Uh, it shows the Great Pyramids. It shows their orientation. Cairo is to the upper right off of the frame. North is at the top. South is at the bottom. And on the left, there is a beautiful photograph of um, the belt stars of Orion, Alnitek, Analem, and Mintaka. <clears throat> and according to Robert Baval and um, his, uh, I think Maurice Cottrell was his co-author, uh, Robert had this ingenious inspiration many, many years ago, literally uh, camping one night in the <clears throat> Sahara Desert, looking at Orion over the surface, that the layout of the pyramids of Giza mirror the layout of the stars, the three brilliant blue uh, type O and B stars in the belt of Orion, which are hundreds of light years away. And it's become incredibly controversial to this day. There are naysayers, there are people like uh, Stephen Myers who think there's kind of circular reasoning, that the reason that Baval says that, you know, these stars are looking like Orion's belt is because someone said they look like Orion's belt and it becomes a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy, a, a, a line of circular reasoning. I think it's much more interesting, as you were about to see, because if you now go to number 17, and I, again, reverse the orientation, <clears throat> north is again at the top, south is at the bottom, the crater rim is just out of frame at the bottom, next to the three big, massive, mile-size structures laid out 
as a mirror image of the Orion Belt stars, we have three much smaller and decaying pyramidal structures, and they are laid out exactly under the dome of Jezero, right next to the south wall of the crater, the crater rim, the several thousand foot high mountains that ring Jezero as the uplifted uh, excavated material when the crater was formed. Now you, what you want to do is you want to go to number um, 18. And this shows you <clears throat> when you lay a template of the Giza pyramids over these three structures on Mars. They mirror not only the geometry, but pretty much their relative size. Uh, Mintaka, if we can use the analogy, seems to be somewhat bigger. But the layout, by the way, that angle between the, the two pyramids, um, Kefren and um, um, uh, Khufu and, and uh, Mycerinus, which is the Greek name for these pyramids, the, the line between Kefren and Khufu is a straight line, and then Nintaka or Mycerinus drops down. That angle <clears throat> is 19.5 degrees, and it's mirrored both at Giza and on Mars. So, going back to the main uh, page, go to number 19. Click on 19. <clears throat> this shows you again uh, north is the top where it should be, south is the bottom. You can see the crater rim there. You see all kinds of amazing geometry. You see these pyramids. <clears throat> the ones on the left are the big, huge guys. They're miles across. They're equivalent in size to the main pyramids at Sidonia. The ones on the right are uh, significantly smaller. The ones on the left are mirroring the Giza geometry, the Orion's belt geometry, the ones on the right are not. The ones on the right are exactly the way when you look down on Cairo from orbit, from a satellite, from a spacecraft, and you take a picture, you can see Khufu on the right, Kefren in the middle, and Mycerinus on the bottom left. And the scale and the orientation on Mars matches for these one-to-one -one with, in fact, the pyramids on Earth. And my question for the house, and anybody wants to go first, welcome to it. How do we explain this in any rational universe? Who wants to go first? Um, well, Richard, I can't explain it with a, um, in a rational universe, but I can explain it with my ruler. So if the audience want to get their own ruler out and measure the... Um, the, the length of the spacings between uh, the Mars. Oh, there's a lot of noise in your in your mic. Don't oh, move your mic, please. Sorry. I'll be still. So I got my ruler out. I just backed up what you've been saying, and the uh, the spacings are the same exactly as um, what is on Mars on the in Egypt. So isn't uh, that amazing? Yeah, that you know. Come on. It's not, it's not, I'm quite speechless. There's not much more you can say, isn't it? Okay, so let me let you sit there speechless. You'll have something else to say in about two or three minutes when you thought about this because I've hit you with this brand new. Ron? Uh, yes. Well, what do you think? Uh, they line up just fine. I don't know what else to say. 
Well, the implications, and I want to bring Andrew in on this, um, mm-hmm. is remember I've been saying that Yezero was the jumping off place when the last Martians had to leave, turn out the lights and migrate to Earth, our great-great-grandmothers. That's my model. And the reason I think that is because this appears to be the antecedent of replicating the same pyramidal geometry mirroring the belt stars of Orion on Earth when these folks made their huge migration. So does that... So is that the um, is that the germ in the middle, Richard? That would explain why NASA is so contrite about being clear for all these decades. Because as you've outlined, you know, throughout your career, this is a giant ritual timepiece, and I, I don't know exactly what the end point is. But does something have to come into focus? Or them. <laughs> well, let's imagine this. Let's imagine we have migrants, incredibly sophisticated, living, you know, at a stage three, stage five, whatever level civilization you want to on Mars. The environment is going to hell in a handbasket around them. They look across the millions of miles. They see this incredible blue-green sphere where you can walk outside without a dome, without a spacesuit, without anything, and they have to move here. And there are folks here already, other members of the human family. Because remember, earlier in our model, this group of humans was taken to Mars as kind of a laboratory test tube and allowed to run amok to create whatever civilization on the next planet outward from the sun compared to what was going on on Earth by someone who set up the entire experiment, this grand you know, hundreds of millions of year old experiment that I'm envisioning as a school for consciousness to see what would happen if you isolate members of the same species on different worlds and just let them evolve, just let time flow, let things happen and see what will happen. Now, the backstory to this Maybe, and again, this is total, total speculation, consciousness in the universe may be incredibly rare. You know, remember, Sagan looked out there and he said, you know, if if it's teeming with life, it's astonishing. And if we're the only ones, it's astonishing. It's kind of like, you know, either answer is mind-boggling. Suppose the answer is that life and consciousness are very, very rare. And whoever the guys were that came here... hundreds of millions of years ago, maybe, you know, like half a billion, three quarters of a billion years and rearrange the solar system to set up the experiment. Maybe the objective of the experiment, given that you do experiments when you don't know the answer, was to see what the answer was. Why is life, conscious, intelligent life, so rare? Was this the crucible? Was this the academy? Was this the school in which those answers could be found by simply winding things up, starting them apace, and standing back to see what happened. And again, in this model, what eventually happened is the segment of Homo sapiens that had been taken hundreds of thousands of years ago to Mars were forced, because of the deteriorating environment, 
to come back to their home, home planet, where there already was a major set of civilizations, indigenous peoples and cultures and all that. And what does that set us up for? Andrew, you want to venture a guess? Uh, no, you go, Richard. No, you go. Come on. <laughs> courage, courage, come on. No, no, you... you. <laughs> it set us up for a dichotomy. We're now wrestling, and again, this is total speculation because I don't have more than a couple of data points. Yeah. We're set up now where one group of humans, white people, are being pitted against other groups of humans, colored peoples, red, brown, black, whatever. And it appears not to be part of a political system. It appears almost built in the DNA. Is it possible if we invoke one more data point, which is the idea of reincarnation? Suppose at the end game, when all of the history becomes manifest, when it becomes real, when it's finally three-dimensional, when it's out of the closet, out of suppression, out of the lost pages of history, when in fact this real ancient history of Homo sapiens is written, is it possible that there are a lot of folks here who used to live on Mars and are now reincarnated and they're living out their, their trips, their tapes, their programming, whatever you want to call it, in a terrestrial scenario that really began tens of thousands, maybe something like 40,000 years ago when the white guys on Mars, and why were they white? Well, lack of sunlight, living in domes, living in arcologies, you know, lack of solar insulation, uh, the divergence of species to skin color, to, to melanin, that kind of thing is trivial. And no, no real anthropologist that I've read uh, from Coons on forward can explain where Caucasians come from. We then have, as Ron and I have been discussing over the last few weeks, um, anthropological data at the genetic level that shows that various genotypes on Earth are not shared widely. They appear to be like an intrusive species with a different genome, and that genome seems to predominate and separate humans into humans of color and humans of Caucasian background, which, by the way, that name comes from the Caucasus mm. Mountains, which, of course, is one of the first places that one looks to to where immigrants from Mars with a thinner atmosphere would have come to high levels of mountains where they could breathe without necessity of acclimating to much denser air at sea level. I mean, we can develop all of this in future months and years. What I'm laying out tonight is, isn't it extraordinarily relevant that just when racism on a mass scale is being appreciated for the first time in modern American history, we find evidence that some of us, not all of us, except for the interbreeding that took place later, so nobody has, quote, pure blood, but some of us may not have originated on this planet and may have brought their psychological, spiritual, metaphysical uh, baggage with them and are almost like recapitulating 
the same strife and controversies that would have erupted enormously when one group of humans invaded Earth to basically suppress and dominate and rule another group of humans because they could. I hear sighs. Yeah, I was Richard. You have taken a whiteboard covered with uh, uh, drawn marks and post-it notes and turned it into a very thick piece of plywood. There's, there's, you've got too many, you got, you got too many pawns on the board there. Uh, it, I, I kind, I object to this uh, racial angle. To the whole thing because we only have as as they call it anatomically modern humans um one genome it's all the same one and it how it got there involved a bunch of divergent species but that's uh yeah that's i i just don't think that's the right way to look at it the uh with apologies to uh mr farrakhan who um <laughs> thinks that the dar no, I'm serious. He he's he's a very intellectual he's a very intellectual sort, but he came to the conclusion that the um, dark-skinned races I even hate to use the word, but you have to say something clinically were the original inhabitants of Earth, and they were getting displaced by these uh, off-planet others. And I'd rather look at a Burroughs model. Yes, I know he wrote fiction, but after all, it was Barsoom. They had red Martians and uh, blue Martians and gray Martians and white wow. Martians. And uh, it's, uh, these are minor differences. I mean, the major differences are what matter. And if so, if it's anything, if anybody's racist, it's the people out there, not the people, us, not the people here. And it's, uh, if they care about that stuff to that level, what we are is a biological experiment. We were created and you can pick where you like for where the DNA came from. Um, viable local hominid forms, which implies that they were seeded in the basis form before that, Burmese idea, or anything else you like. But we're a mixture, and that mixture is going to create a diverse spectrum. It's just the way it works. I mean, I've tried to say a hundred times, we are the result of a breeding program, and it involved species that came from different roots. Subspecies. We'd have to call them subspecies, but you know, just other forms of hominids. And sometimes the matchups work better than others. So they had to use, uh, just like animal husbandry is with cattle or anything else. Some breeds interbreed better than others. And when you get the breed you like out of the end result, then you make that, you turn that into a um, pure breeding strain, and you've got your, you've got your cows. And I mean, I really think that to, if there isn't anyone out there that's paying that kind of attention to us that doesn't know about us already, that's what they think of us as cattle, because we were clearly created through a long process that took 200,000 years. Well, but, so but I, in, at, in, in that, at that process, point, of, I think we're all in the house. Go ahead. But in that, but, but in that process of creation, when you move spe- parts of the species around to separate planets and isolate them. And I agree with your time horizon, quarter million years. Why do I agree with that? Because of the age dating, the celestial alignments that I worked out decades ago for Sidonia. And that hominid face, that feline hominid fusion, which has always said to me, kind of like the Sphinx in Egypt, oh, we're back to Egypt. Wow. Um, 
you know, mixing of, of, of genomes, mixing of, of genetics, mixing of DNA as an experiment. And the experiment was separated. So part of humanity was raised on Mars and then evolved in whatever ways that they would. The other part was remained on Earth, separately evolved in whatever direction they would. And then at the very end of the story, the end of the soap opera, just 40,000 years ago, the necessities of Mars deteriorating like hell forced the migrants that had been isolated for 250,000 years to come back to a planet that they had originally spawned from because it's all ultimately, yes, one family. I'm not talking fundamental divisions. I'm talking metaphysical, spiritual, and psychological divisions and what happened when these two parts of the family came back together under very extreme circumstances 40,000 years ago. Well, Richard, if I may... um, That's why you're here. You may. Yeah. Well, I think you... (laughs) Well, we're almost in May. Um, I I think you're touching on something with this sort of, uh, you know, these distinctions between people. I mean, you know, part of this, some would argue, is is artificial because it's not as bad as it is it you know maybe portrayed in a place like north america like let's let's put canada in there as well because we have a, a pretty decent mix as well um but laura london friend of the show mentioned something to me uh, it was weeks and weeks, months ago she said you know with all this anxiety about racial tension is this a preparation is this a deliberate preparation for people to get used to the idea, I mean, if we can't even do it amongst ourselves, and we've been together for a pretty long time now, how are we going to do it if there is some sort of union that's about to begin with our uh, cousins? And and another piece, you know, in terms of a metaphysical side, and I know we've discussed this before uh, lightly, but years ago in my um, art therapy training, one of my instructors, really great, great guy, Ross Laird, wonderful author. He taught us um, sort of a, lot, a lot of the personality uh, theories and mythologies and stuff. But one of the things that he said that always sort of stuck with me is he said, humanity is in the return phase of the hero's journey. And he never elaborated beyond that. And, I, and that always sort of hung with me. And I realize more and more that that's in fact what's happening and coming back to what you've talked about for, for decades about this sort of ritual time clock. And if we look at the hero's journey, we have the departure, we have the initiation, and then we have the return. And as we know, the return is as, is as fraught with danger, sometimes even more so when you're almost at the end and about to return, you know, to your community or to the, you know, the place whence you began with a bigger knowledge and a bigger self-understanding. I think this is a huge return and a huge collective return of us coming back home and rediscovering our roots. I know that sounds pretty basic and simple, but I think it's literally it's tracked out. It's just kind of like Braille. It's like, it's like we're all sort of in this um, consciousness Braille, feeling our way, and we're getting the same pattern that's bringing us forward. And so I think it's, it's very, very um, significant what you guys are saying. You know, what, whatever the, the particular mechanics are, we're in this rhythm. 
and it's something that's going to happen. I, I don't know if that helps the conversation, but it's uh, – Georgia could probably explain this a lot mm. better than me, but yeah. Hmm. What I'm laying out here is an indisputable fact on which you can build all kinds of speculations, and I freely admit what I venture tonight is extraordinarily speculative. But the facts are you have a geometry at Giza that we know is about 200,000 years old. How do we know that? I'm not talking the pyramids on the plateau, but the architectural plan showing – you know, the three belt stars in that particular 19.5 geometry is at least 200,000 years old because of proper motion studies of the stars involved themselves and a dating of the platform at Giza under the pyramids, which was done back in the 1970s. Um, I forget which researchers actually used the relatively modern uh, model of plate tectonics and, you know, plate motions and rotations to measure the alignments of the uh, architecture at Giza with the North Star, with the procession and all that. And if you run their calculation to its ultimate conclusion, you find that the alignments all work with due north, because they're now off north by, you know, a, a few minutes of arc, taking the plate motions measured for the the um, uh, African plate and putting that in the computer equation, what comes out is an answer of around 200,000 years for the architectural design of the Giza Plateau. Well, that design of those pyramids are the same as we're seeing in the smaller set Uh, just north of the south rim of Yezero Crater. And the other, the larger set, they're the ones that I find so bafflingly interesting and confoundingly weird. Because why are they mirror-imaged? Why did someone build these huge structures with cubic miles of volume inside, obviously where people were living, Why did they build them but in a mirror image of the Giza um, belt star geometry? Is that telling us something about the physics? Is that telling us something about what happened during the Great War, which I'm thinking is, you know, a long time ago, millions of years, that actually did something to to turn – this is going to sound really nuts, folks – to turn reality inside out. So the geometry of the larger structures on Mars now looks opposite, but in fact, before the catastrophe, it was the same. And you literally have a mirroring because the physics caused a rift in literal dimension time space and everything came out opposite on the other side. Why are those massive pyramids arrayed in the same geometry, but 180 degrees different in the mirror? We'll have to find out after the break. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm, I'm I'm glad someone's paying attention. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday now, Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. I mean, I know I've kind of thrown a cat among the pigeons, and I thought long and hard. I mean, I've thought about this for literally months and months and months ever since I discovered this remarkable connection between Giza. I mean, a demonstrable connection, the layout of the belt stars of Orion, not once, but twice in Yezero on two different scales indicating two different levels of technological competence and the ability to form massive archaeological or archaeological um, enclosed structures. And one is a mirror image of the geometry of the belt stars to the other. And the latter, the smaller ones, are almost duplicates in scale, and certainly in geometry, for what we find on the Giza Plateau, indicating there is some fundamental human link between what we see on Mars tonight in Yezero, along the south wall of that crater, inside the dome, and what we see at Giza on Earth. And we must resolve where this connection comes from.
Okay, I think we have Tim with us. Mr. Saunders, are you there? Yes, I, I am here. Good evening. And you have been listening. I am dying to find out your thoughts on all this. I have to admit that I did try and listen with one eye open, but I did not succeed. <laughs> I have recently woken up, so I did miss miss the beginning of the show. But I am I am on time to wish you a happy birthday. Oh my god. Just appropriate. Oh uh, thank How you. About that? Thank you. That makes up for everything. Okay. Uh does someone want to fill Tim in on what cat I threw among what pigeons? Andrew? Mr. Curry. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> just choking. Um Sorry, you just caught me off guard there, Richard. Um, well, basically, Tim, it's um, back to the model that Jezera was the jumping off point for the last um, inhabitants of Mars, and they kind of came here um, after the Earth was, you know, previously seated with human beings, and um, it's been a kerfuffle ever since, you know, essentially. And, and I mean, the evidence is, in many ways, is pointing that way. Um, I, I sort of outline that I think we're reverse direction and maybe that sort of lines up with Richard's ritual model that, you know, now is the time and we're going to, you know, we're seeing all the mechanisms business wise, like with Musk and, and the rest of them that are, you know, lining up almost like, uh, what is it, Richard? Antarctica has, everybody's tried to take a, a, a piece of it, depending on the latitude or whatever. It, it feels like the same thing on Mars. Well, yeah, hang on. Let, let, let me stop you there because I noticed something really bizarre. Um, when the Russians started going into space with, you know, manned space flight, <clears throat> they had these little plush toys they would carry with them on a string to let them know when they achieved zero gravity, you know, the balance of centrifugal okay. force and all that. <clears throat> and it's become a kind of a ritual. NASA's adopted it. And um, remember on the on the first crew uh, flight of the uh, SpaceX, you know, transportation system of NASA astronauts to and from the space station, they picked a dinosaur, right? Which mm -hmm. I find very interesting. On this flight of crew two, again, they're always blaming the kids. Oh, the kids wanted this and the kids named it and all that. <clears throat> on this, apropos what you just said. They picked a penguin. Ah. Now, why did they pick a penguin? Why is the imprimatur of Musk a dragon? The spacecraft is called a dragon. The complete name for this spacecraft, which is the recycled, refurbished spacecraft of Crew-1, is, is uh, Endeavor. So when you put it together, it's Dragon Endeavor. The Chinese are very big on dragons. They're sitting in Mars orbit tonight, waiting, waiting for something. But dragons are a part of the whole imprimatur of Chinese cultural mythology. And now, of course, they have named their rover after a fire dragon. Um, apropos of the fiery star of Mars, the reddish color in the sky, I can't put my finger on it, but I'm just wondering if this is not all planned, <clears throat> is it falling out of the physics as a kind of a background metatone 
that's entraining all of us in these archetypes, in these symbols, in these visible, you know, importunings of an invisible um, background story that we're not apprehending yet, but which is kind of there in the background waiting to be told. Tim, what do you think? Well, it's, it's certainly not a random selection of uh, iconography, is it? I mean, this is so specific. Mm. One would think there's a script. One would think there's something which has been reenacted or something which is, you know, these are the symbolic ingredients which are required in order to, you know, perhaps symbolically open the door or perhaps even tell people, you know, this is what we're doing because they seem to like to tell us. So, um, uh, it, it's bizarre. I mean, it, it is it is almost like a theatre production where everyone has a script and people are waiting on the wings and they're sort of enter stage left and you must be wear, wearing this or you must be uh, you know adorned with that. It, it is pretty weird. It is pretty weird. Uh, and Richard, uh, and, oh. go ahead, please. Uh, Richard, what about the United Arab Emirates? Have we got any data on what what they're doing? I mean, Keith or Keith. Well, um, remember, what is the mission of the UAE spacecraft? It's not going to land. It's not a rover, not a lander. It's it's in it's in orbit. But what is it focusing on? The the atmosphere. The atmosphere. Yes. Oh my. (laughs) So if NASA has what its mission plan is, yes, you're right. Yeah. And if 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 it's if it's planned that they're going to be the ones to find the irrevocable problem in the NASA calculations, oh, it was just a mistake. You know, we didn't mean it. We just got off on the you know kind of like Ron's model that they just got stuck with Calori's measurements back from Mariner Four. If you can't admit it yourself, if you have a third party that is supposedly neutral, objective, new eyes, new science, new approach, if they come with a revision of the environment, and why is my screen moving? If they come with a revision of the environment, um, it can be attributed to nothing but an honest mistake, right? It's not if, it's when, surely, because I heard this week that the... Sorry, Ron. I didn't mean to jump on your. your no, no, no. I'm just no. I'm just making grunting noises in the background. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Keep going. Um, I was just going to say that the reason I believe why uh, Ingenuity did not take its first test flight on on their planned day is because a certain amount of recalculation was required, and that means data swapping between Mars and Earth. That takes time. Um, but I heard specifically that a new set of data was uploaded to Ingenuity to recalibrate the picture of the rotor blades, which were right, which your Skype is garbling. We're missing a few words. Say that again, please. Uh, I hate that when it happens. Um, I was just saying that I heard specifically that the NASA beamed up a new set of data to recalibrate the picture of the rotor blades for ingenuity in order for it to take off. Yeah, they changed the flight plan in the in the in the little helicopter computer to accommodate some unknown factors. We're never told what the unknown factors were. They said it was timing. 
Well, timing covers a multitude of sins. I think it was because um, the atmosphere was different than the engineers thought it was going to be. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it. I, don't, I can't be sure, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's the density of the atmosphere. That's what it was, and therefore the pitch, and therefore the timing of the the speed of the RPM of the rotor blade. But see, uh, then none of the team, except for the engineers involved in the reprogramming, would have to know. It could be one guy. Remember the guy sitting in the corner in Jurassic Park who caused all the huge problems? He was a computer programmer. If if the folks that know are only those that have to know, you know, need to know, then everybody else is delightfully going on thinking that the, you know, the timing problem was solved, not the real problem. And they don't know yet that the atmosphere of Mars is much denser unless, like we're doing, <clears throat> they're looking at every frame, every video, every downlink, every, you know, circumstantial piece of data and putting it into a different way of interpreting things than have been used up until now. And who's doing that in NASA? Nobody. Yeah, it, it, it's outside people. Not yeah. amateur-ish, but not professionally paid people in NASA, yes. Well, when I call, when I call it the Church of NASA, it's like, you know, the the reason why why pedophilia has gone on in the Catholic Church for so long <clears throat> is that the hierarchy turned a blind eye to it, moved priests around, kept them separate from press and police and all that for as long as possible. The institution mandated against the revelation until the people rose up in arms, overwhelmingly crying, this has got to stop. So the institution itself basically fostered a, a situation where <clears throat> bad stuff could go on because nobody wanted to deal with it. I see a similar situation in NASA regarding the real environment of Mars. Nobody except a handful of those key people at key positions in the system know the truth, and their job is to express the truth, spread disinformation in the form of equations, in the form of logical you know, PowerPoint presentations in the form of everything that builds up a false picture that most of the church inside, meaning the JPL people, the NASA people, buy because no one can imagine that the institution they work for has been consistently and with great dedication lying about the environment of Mars for over half a century. Conceive of it. It's, it's impossible to imagine. Therefore, they can't. So, Richard, what you're suggesting is that it doesn't really take very many uh, folks to keep the lid on. If you're dependent on virtual reality digital data, remember the only pipeline of information that we have about what's going on out there is a few government agencies. Now, that's going to be broken relatively soon by an upstart named Elon Musk. Um, Ron, we got some time, and then I come back to Tim. Uh, Tim, take some more coffee so you'll wake up fully, because I want you to go through some of your slides again. Ron, why don't you talk about yeah. the the derivation of the name Elon and the amazing connections you came across that, without context, don't mean anything, but with the context that I'm trying to provide tonight by going way out on this limb, they might mean more. Okay, 
this is extraordinarily anecdotal. It's what, uh, which is kind of one of the fun sides of falling down a rabbit hole. I was just looking up the actual origin of the name Elon. And I'm sorry, I can't mute the phone and talk at the same time. It, somehow that doesn't work. So I had to get up and now I'm going to sit down. The, um, the name Elon, as everybody's heard by now, um, is, and of course, he's, you know, Jewish extraction. And it's a, uh, it's a biblical name, but it's a rare one. It's a very old, old name. It goes back to the peoples that were conquered by the Israelites when they were moving from one place to another at God's behest. And um, so it, it goes back into that era. This is, but, old, uh, this is old Testament stuff, right? Yeah, and it's older than the Old Testament as, as far as it goes. Uh, the, um, uh, the name, it's uh, that particular, well, the name, um, I don't know about Eli, but Elam is, is related to it. And you'd have to ask someone who's fluent in um, Hebrew how that works out, but that's the way it works out. The, uh, it's not a, in other words, it's not a rare name, and it really means uh, steadfast. It translates to oak tree, but these ancient languages, you've got to consider nothing but the context. And so the context was what's strong and stout and resolute, that's an oak tree. So that's the connection. That's how that works. And uh, it traces back to a word from the Horites, who I hadn't heard of. Uh, they're uh, people mentioned in the Bible as being chased out of somewhere. And it turned out that one of these the pre-Sumerian Bible, tribes in the Middle East in that in the so-called Fertile yeah. Crescent. And they used to be called the Horians and then the Horites. Yeah. You know, they're all the same origin derivation of, of, of the name. It's H O R. It's Horus. It's the Falcon. It's yeah. it's Horus. So it may be older than Horus. This may be where the yes, Horus came from. I, I agree. Because I the agree. yeah, because the root uh, the root to the Hurrian side of things is who. Um, all jokes welcome, uh, but just uh, <laughs> we'd spell it just H U. That's one. That was one of the primordial gods from that rather surprisingly mysterious part of the world when it comes to that. Some places plot out their mythology so that everybody can track it later, and some don't. And but it's clearly that was one of the root gods. And um, anyway, the Horites turned out to be the Hurrians, and it turns out that they came from a place which is now in um, Czechoslovakia, and it's east of the Black Sea, which is where I had determined that uh, the earliest uh, civilized residents were. Translate are refugees from Mars. That's where they seem to have ended up and traveled out from. Uh, but it uh, happens to be a lake, a single lake there that actually is named Jazeera, <laughs> usually, usually spelled with an I. You're uh, kidding. So, no, so that's a singular site that goes back to before Sumer. Uh, but, you know, and then you notice NASA was talking as if this crater on Mars had been one great big lake. And not that big a lake, but a big lake. And clearly it was not. Clearly it was not all full of water up to the brim like the, some of the artwork that they released originally. But the original one in Czechoslovakia is, unless somebody over the intervening time has drained it. But it's just, you know, buried in the um, etymology. You were right the first time at the beginning of the show, uh, the origins of the names. And clearly Elon Musk loves to look at this stuff. 
I know I'm probably one of the few people listening to the show that has not uh, patronized one of those hereditary genealogy, track your DNA kind of uh, things. I don't care. Uh, but a lot of people have, and uh, I'm sure Musk has. And so looking at that derivation, he would know all the stuff that I've been talking about and everything we've been talking about tonight. And so he'd say, oh, I'm really an alien. I'm descended from aliens, which explains one of his myriad of peculiar comments. You know, I think there's humor behind it, but he's, you know, he's not entirely wrong. So he feels himself tied into all of this. I, I'm less mystified, Richard, before we get out of the fact that um, in Bernard Braun's book about a mission to Mars that he wrote back in the 40s, uh, he had the um, leader of the Martians uh, titled as Elon. And um, I don't... I don't think that's where the name came from. That was just a common source kind of thing. And Werner von Braun was, well, we all know what Werner von Braun was, but uh, he had professional respect for all of the Jewish scientists he worked with. They just didn't like the fact that they were basically enslaved, so they were not real fond of him. Uh, but, you know, he was very much into mysticism and things related to it, as was everybody else that was part of the SS and the and an Irby. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, that part, that one's easy. Okay. He picked up the, he picked up the term there. That would, would have been a good name for that. And for all I know, there is some mystical, uh, outline that Himmler came up with that involved a Martian civilization. I mean, we really don't know what kind of stuff the, um, uh, mystical, wing of the Nazis. Well, we don't know. Uh, Remember, they were looking for records. They were scouring the planet, including Tibetan monasteries, South America, looking for ancient records. If they found them, they kept them secret. If they found them and then we, meaning the United States when we invaded Germany and took everything, including paperclip, back here, we kept them secret. But at what level do they come out? I mean, this connection... The ancient derivation of Elan to, you know, Hurrians to a lake named Jizero in Czechoslovakia, where maybe migrants from Mars and a crater named Jezero. It, it just, it's almost like it's too cool for school. So is there a pattern underneath the plot? Is someone putting this together yeah. as part of, as one of our folks this morning said, a script? It's a mirror image. It's mimicry. Yeah. It's, okay. We have uh, some callers. About the, yeah. We have some callers. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, someone wants to get in on the action here. Area code 843, get ready. I'm about to open the line. You are on the air. Uh, good Mr. Richard Hoagland. Are you receiving me? We receive you loud and clear. Who are you? Then if I am to ascertain the knowledge that slipped up a little earlier, uh, would I be the first uh, guest uh, on the caller line to wish you a very happy birthday, sir? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Gosh, people are remembering. Yeah, I picked up on that, and I was like, no way. (laughs) You know, it's actually – it's now today, so let's move on. Okay, very good, sir. Um, Quick – Quick follow-up on the Mars topic. I'll try and keep it confined to a few sentences. Hang on, hang on. Give us your name, your first name. Oh, my name, sir, is Micah. 
I'm calling from the uh, coastal area of South Carolina. This is the uh, second time I've called the show. Okay. Um, the first time I called, you had a good guest on that whose name I do regret I have forgotten, but he was a gentleman and a scholar, spent some time in China and Hong Kong, and my inquiry to him was about Mongolian uh, legends concerning dragons. And um, I had made mention to you, um, I may not have told you at the time, but I had come to find out that, uh, you know, I'm about to turn 48 years old, and I've listened to your um, hour, recently deceased icon, which is Art Bell, um, you know, and I listened to a lot of uh, major Ed Danes concerning remote viewing, but to get to the gist, um, I had asked you, has anyone ever spoken of pods that were either in orbit around Mars, or has anyone viewed them? Because that was something that I had viewed, sir. I viewed five of them that were together for five occupants. And I, from the way they were designed, looked like it could have been made mass manufactured by the billions, if you no, have wait, the right wait, technology. When you say pods and you say see them, are we talking telescopes or remote viewing? Uh, I'm talking about remote viewing. Ah, okay, okay. Or at that time, I was rather vague because I, from what I saw, was so descriptive, I, I, I really couldn't see how some telescope somewhere had not seen it. If it's either in our orbit or Mars's orbit, but I know Mars was a um, starting point for some degree. But again, I, you, I just wanted to touch base. That was one concerning one of my previous calls, but I found it uh, fascinating that I saw your show on this evening, and it was concerning that subject. Um, but what I wanted to cover is something completely unrelated to that, and it's actually some scientific news that I think is almost deliberately going under the radar. Uh, I, I'm probably vague in assuming that, but that there is supposed to be some sensors on one of the northern areas of Mars that over the last few years has detected a buildup in a creation on Mars of some minor or possibly major level of oxygen. And mm. I was just curious, uh, these guests... Where hear this? I was just going to say, what's your source? Uh, my so And see, that's what I'm going to name my source. My source was actually, if I am correct, uh, what does the... Uh, well, I am, is it okay to say the YouTube name of the gentleman? No, He's uh, pretty... Yeah. Okay, uh, it's he. It's a gentleman, this Russian, that does a show called What the Math, and um, he basically has a very good English voice, and he finds a way to layman term things concerning the physics of astrology. That oh, this will go back a little Doesn't bit. Make him right. Our Star Hustler <laughs> fan, as being an old Star Hustler fan, I enjoyed from oh, that good John, gentleman every John, night. John Horkheim. Yes, sir. His name in years. There we. go. Hey, we sir, are coming. I, that is what got me hold into on. astronomy. Yes, sir. Hold on, hold on, because we're we're coming to the bottom of the hour here, um, and I want to hold you over because I want you to. Uh, well, you need to give me some contact information so that we can actually track down this Russian source that claims what you're claiming. He's claiming. So, everyone, kind of Very hold good, it there. Sir. Everyone, hold it there. Okay. Um, don't go away. So. Do this and I do this and then I do this. Okay. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, 
Um, so you can look them up on the bio part of the other side of midnight on the guest page. Uh, we have some guests on the line. We have a source in Russia that claims that there's a, a mission measuring increases in oxygen on Mars. I'm unaware of the technology that would make that possible, but we'll find out more on the other side of the break. You are on the other side of midnight. We're discussing Mars tonight. And in the last half hour, we're going to talk about a major potential geopolitical breakthrough, putting together all the threads of everything we have discussed. So don't touch that dial. The other side is midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour. As I said, we're going to have a little bit of a geopolitical surprise here in the next few minutes. Let's go back to our caller. Um, Caller, am I correct that your name is Micah, like one of the uh, biblical prophets? Um, Yes, sir. And uh, briefly, that was some confusion as a kid. Um, I actually expected to go to Sunday school one year and uh, maybe get a big surprise party for it, you know. I was kind of vague on it, but I knew it was something special. But, yes, sir, named correctly after that. Well, the reason I bring that up is because as part of Ron's research, he went looking through the Old Testament. It turns out that the Elan name comes from Judges. And Judges were, you know, like here in the United States, the state of Texas – has regional managers for counties, and they're called judges. You know, they are managing authority. They are are executives. So the judges, Elan in judges was a judge. He was a commanding authority. He was a decision maker. He was an executive. So the idea that Von Braun then took that name and applied it to the head of the Mars Council as part of his colonization program in his novel and then we have a real guy named Elon who wants to go to Mars and colonize and who declared himself the imperator of Mars the other day and now we find it all traces back through genealogies of ancient Middle Eastern tribes 
that go all the way back into Czechoslovakia and a lake called Jezero on Earth, Jezero on Mars. I'm, I'm kind of looking at this gestalt and I'm just saying there's too many, there's too many coincidences for all of this to be just coincidence. What do you think? Well, good, sir. I would agree with you that, it, you know, and I'd just say briefly and let you continue because I'm finding great interest in it. Um, it. And even though a lot of other groups have used this recently, unfortunately, it formulates words to describe this, and that is there does come a point when coincidence becomes mathematically impossible. Well, I can agree with you there. <laughs> Okay, well, well I go think, ahead, sir. I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't want to interrupt no, that, no. but I felt I needed no. to chime in. That's quite all right. Well, I want to thank you for the call. I want to, I want to bring back on uh, Tim, Tim Saunders, who I think has now been fortified by either another cup of tea or a cup of coffee. I will good night you, sir, and we will talk again. Good evening, sir, and thank you much. You too. Okay, Tim, are you there? I am with Earl Grey. <laughs> so yes, thank you. How did I know? I'm definitely. Well, you know me. Okay. Um, so I let's. Was just, while I, was, I was just listening. I was fascinated to see these color photographs you guys have been putting out. It's great work. So um, please go ahead. No, they're all real. Anyway, what I wanted to do is to come to you for for an update on on your on your dome analysis because, again, you'd only build a dome if on the planet Mars something had to happen to require you to replenish an atmosphere so that you, you know, were not kind of left in the cold outside. So you need an artificial environment to maintain uh, something. So to me, the, the, the era of the domes was probably the last in Mars history. And then, of course, you know, uh, things became so bad that the guys who were there literally had to... Uh, um, uh, migrate and come here, and that's part of the discussion we've had earlier in the morning. Where are we with your continuing examination of the last great architecture on Mars, in my way of thinking, which is the domes? Well, as you know, from the beginning, I, I call this a blue sky project because I don't want to be limited by any sort of preconceived thoughts or, or even laws of physics at some point. Initially, I just want to be try and be creative and put the dots on the table and see how they connect. So just one of the things that I wanted to share with you before we go into some of the images very briefly is that, you know, we're thinking that the dome is the place where the inhabitants lived perhaps because they wanted to keep the atmosphere inside. However, if, you know, what we're talking about in recent weeks is if in fact the Mars atmosphere is different, if in fact the sky is blue, literally, uh, if the density is, is more than previously thought and therefore the ingenuity can take off and accelerate into the sky pretty quickly uh, because the air is more dense. Maybe there was an atmosphere later than we believed. Maybe the dome was something which is used to contain the liquid. Maybe that the water was the more... Ah. Yes. Substance. So Maybe now we're great. now we're at the level of dune and still suits and reclaiming water. Water is a scarce resource. It's very, very Lowellian, very burrows. There's something else well, because we're talking just not just about density, Tim, 
But what about content? What about the ratio of critical gases like free oxygen, like nitrogen? I mean, CO2 is not the kind of atmosphere you can breathe, even if it's at uh, terrestrial density. So maybe it wasn't a change of the density. It was a change of composition. And the only way you can counteract that is to create artificial environments, i.e. domes, to maintain a livable environment. Well, well, we certainly know there's a huge amount of CO2 on Mars, and uh, we've, we've talked about that in quite a lot of detail. In fact, one of my studies with the Mars pump wheel type object, um, I, I put on the table the idea that the reason why we're seeing sort of uh, seemingly metallic type substances which are crumbling away uh, how, and how closely they resemble the corrosion that we have on Earth, where you know you have like CO2 pipelines and that type of thing, where there's a very high content of CO2, and you get that same sort of coloration and degradation of the materials. So yes, there's, there is a much higher level of CO2 on Mars. We know that, but also um, for something which I, I put on our Friday evening show, the other side of the news, we had a an excerpt from a geologist, a geologist who an Australian geologist. Uh, who is uh, called Dr. Jim Rutherford uh, Plimmer, and very interesting uh, speech he gave not so long ago. I can dig out the link, actually, um, where he's saying that, you know, on Earth, there is absolutely absolute evidence that here there was, you know, maybe a thousand times more CO2 than we have today. And, you know, this whole thing about the climate here being, you know, CO2 is the enemy, carbon emissions is the enemy. For example, carbon is not, CO2, it's very different things. Carbon is black and CO2 is, is obviously a gas. And plants thrive on CO2. So this whole climate change enigma here, in my opinion, is, is inverted like so many other things. But that, that's another discussion. But let's go back to your point. Um, yes, the dome could contain a less rich uh, environment with less CO2. It could contain a, a liquid uh, I mean, we can obviously see evidence of the liquid because I've just been studying the color photograph of Jazeera created with all of those little rivers and estuaries and possibly even little pontoons and harbors and everything else we can see in there, let alone that the pyramidic forms. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say a few things just before you go to the image. But if you'd like to go to my fast links, there is, uh, I'm just going to click that there myself. I'm just going to see which numbers they are. Cynthia very kindly put them up for me last night. Um, so let's not spend any time really on the, the first images because they're just there for context and uh, I've, I've been through those before. However, you may recall that we were talking about the other studies which I wanted to work on. One was the Fresnel lens type layer cake uh, of rings, which that one I've not yet com uh, completed, uh, which is more akin to like a lighthouse. Uh, lens. Um, and the other one which I wanted to create, which I have done this week, is more of a following the sort of the 12 sided geometry, which I tend to see in Jazeera Crater. So if anybody would like to have a look at the images, they can go to my fast links, go to the Dome Study 3A1. Very complicated name, but there we are. <laughs> Got it. Came up with. And it's clickable. Oh, those are sweet. Nice work, Tim. Those are, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, it's very kind, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sense of what I see. And it's kind yeah. of an odd 
odd way of working because it, it's not that I'm creating, I'm not intending it to look like this. I am using some reason, some reasoning to, to manifest this, 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 this design. So for example, this is a profile view. The second view is the top view, the dome study 3A2. Mm -hmm. And you can see it's not rocket science. It's it's a twelve-sided figure with a like a sort of a network of. of yeah, three A number four is very interesting with the dent in the in the top. Well, let's not go quite there yet because mm -hmm. that okay. would be my Sorry. piece de la resistance. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But uh, okay. this number three, the third one, is a perspective view. So let me just take you through why I'm choosing to go with these shapes. So first of all, I see the 12-sided figure uh, in the crater. Then I see an inner ring, the, which is uh, eight out of the 12 locations that I would geometrically want to place a column. Before I had like vertical cylindrical columns. This time I, I decided to do something a little bit more interesting to support the roof more. Oh, you've got uh, tetrahedral but, trusses. Well, I, you know, I, I thought that it, it may be an idea. Those tetrahedral trusses may work, and also they don't need to be the same thickness all the way up. So, mm -hmm. I, again, this is very conceptual. And then there's an, a, a central ring as well, but it seems to only have one point on, on the terrain. So, okay, well, let's go tetrahedral again, and let's like sort of open it up like a like the sort of the center of flower almost. It's almost an organic shape this became. Um, and yeah, it, it reminds me more of a circus tent. It reminds me more of the, the dome, literally the dome is, is a, a venue in, in the Docklands area of, of London. Um, but this, this would indeed give, you know, support the roof and it would use the natural shape or edge of the crater. And it would also line up with, you know, let's say eight or nine of the, the, the sort of blurred features I can see on the terrain of the photograph, which is zero crater. So there, that, that's, that's a study which I, I don't feel totally happy with it because I feel that I've kind of put too much intent into it, but it does in some way connect the dots. Um, but, you know, the, the good thing about a study is we can create it, we can look at it, we can be very critical and we can learn from it. So you say you've been reconstructing this looking at the surface, which is primarily that Mars Express look-down image uh, reduced to black and white, to, to grayscale. Have yes. you used any of the reconstructions of the MassCam dome imagery itself looking overhead at that exquisite geometry as part of this reconstruction? Richard, I, I've looked them and I, I've drawn my conclusions of what could be. However, it's it's almost impossible to reconstruct the 3D model just by looking at these because there are so many variables. You have lenses, you have parallax, you have atmosphere, you have perspective, you have foreshortening, you have so many different other not opposing opposing a, a, you know a, a negative word, but there are so many variables floating in the air literally that it's very difficult to define what this thing is. So, um, no, I have not been able to you know, extract the data and then create a surface. Well, NASA's taken okay. another all-sky survey with the MassCam 
of what's overhead. We're working on getting um, certain people to put them together as a mosaic so we can look at the overall geometry, looking up from Perseverance at the sky, at the dome, at the geometry which is there. Um, If anybody in the audience has that expertise and would like to talk to me, uh, there are plenty of ways to reach me uh, through the website, through the show, uh, through email, through the phone. Um, If you'd like to put this together and come on and talk about your reconstruction, I'd be most happy to entertain someone who had the perspicacity and the diligence and the um, uh, temperament, because it takes a lot of patience to do this, uh, to do this, because I think that's an important next step in reconstructing what is there now and what used to be there, because the major geometry, as near as I can tell from what we've done so far, the major geometry is still there. We ought to be able to do a really interesting one-on-one between the dome overhead and the patterns, Tim, that you're seeing on the ground as evidences of the of the structural supports and outlines of the construction of the dome. Well, I, I totally agree. Uh, it's it's just uh, you know a, a, a fair amount of work to do. It, it's it's um, a logical, systematic task to undertake, and it is it's, it's not how much can I say I don't want to belittle it, but it's not in, it's not a difficult thing to do. It's a time-consuming thing to do, and it needs sharp eyes and fresh eyes, but uh, with an ambition to finish it within, you know, within a number of days, <laughs> a number of months. Yep. So that's something I, I don't have that sort of time at the moment to do that, unfortunately. But I'm sure there are people out there who would be willing. And uh, maybe it's something you could post something on Facebook to ask, maybe uh, wave a carrot at them. You know, I, I don't know what that carrot would be, but I'm sure they'd love to come on the show and talk about it. Well, we're in 190 some countries, so you know the show is a good conduit. I wanted to ask you: Have you had a chance to look at some of the surface imagery, like <clears throat> my number 11, 12, and uh, 13, particularly number 12 in my section? I'm just going there now. Um, we we did miss one of my images, the one that Ron was talking about. But uh, let's let's, get, let's jump to your uh, number 12. So I'm just arriving there now, number 12. This is Percy LVS colorized UMSF, this one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, I, I did study that early in the week. You sent it to me Yeah, this is what the dome that. is protecting or was protecting. Um, mm-hmm. See, now this is in the opposite direction from where <clears throat> they are saying the Perseverance might go the northern route to look at the Delta. Remember they have that map? showing a northern route and a southern route. Yes. And I said they were going to choose a southern route. That was long before I found this stuff. Suppose, and we're going to spend the last, you know, 10 minutes or so, I guess, speculating here. Remember, this this rover is equipped to look for ancient buried archaeology. It's mm-hmm. got ground-penetrating radar. It's got cameras. Of, I, I saw them activate the Sherlock camera. Remember, they have two instruments on the on the arm. One's called Sherlock and the other's called Watson, someone was thinking. <laughs> the Sherlock camera can see down to 10 microns. And they have some photos that they've taken and put in the raw image file showing the incredible fine detail on the woven cloth 
of spacesuits that ultimately might be used by visitors or colonists, whatever. So mm-hmm. if they get access to technology like circuits or materials or cloth, Ron is big into you know plastic or other coverings that he sees in some places in the other imagery. They are loaded to look at archaeology up close and personal, except they appear to have landed in the wrong place. So I ventured the, the, the you know, speculation that I now think I know why the Chinese are waiting. What if there is an agreement to be activated when NASA, in its you know, fullness of time between now and, let's say, the end of June, decides to reveal in whatever form they choose to reveal that there's more than just rocks and craters and radiation in Jezero Crater. Suppose they really have intended all along to head south to where these stunning pyramids, these mathematical and geometrical complexes of vast ancient decaying structures all aligned along that southwestern and southern wall, including the replications of Giza, or maybe it's the inverse, Giza is the replication of what was here, is all to be found. And suppose as part of this surface exploration, they invite the Chinese to land further south. And the Chinese Mm -hmm. rover works its way north, looking at the landscape, taking pictures, using its other instruments, and Perseverance works its way south as part of that southern trek, and they meet somewhere in the middle, kind of where these pyramids in item number 12 are located, and humanity with the United Arab Emirates, the Arabs upstairs, measuring the Martian atmosphere in real time now. It's part of a gestalt to reveal the real Mars in the ensuing months as part of a whole new future for space, for NASA, for China, for the Arabs, and mankind. Sounds like a wonderful rendezvous. Is it possible? Am I missing anything? Because I keep asking the question, it's now going on for weeks, what are they waiting for? That Giza connection, that geometry, is telling us something overwhelmingly important about the connection between Mars and Earth and the belt stars of Orion. Well, I think that also, Richard, I mean, this astounding fact is the fact that there are two two, uh, markings for, or two, two symbolic markings of the belt stars of Orion. And that may show that there were, they were marking two different times as the pyramids in Giza are marking a certain time uh, when they are aligned with the, the belt stars of Orion. And then you have you know, Sirius and you have the, um, the other alignments that it kind of define the, this is a time, a time stamp in, in our history. So if there are two of them on Mars, um, it, and we're talking obviously other factors involved such as precession and time and you know, sort of long cyclic orbits and so on, could be marking before and after the catastrophe. 
because let's say Mars didn't have uh, some form of impact with you know either an explosion or with either with a, a, a heavenly body whichever well the is. fifth planet blew up in its face yes that's part well, of yeah. the, you know one model is part of the war so so could could this be marking the before and after you know the, the civilization before and after mm-hmm. these two different versions of the you know excellent question now i have not had the time literally to do the proper motion studies of mintaka compared to Analem and Alnitic, uh, Al- Alnitic um, to see what the relative positions would be over hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. Because of the Gaia database, the data is out there. I just have to go and find it and then put it in, in a careful diagram. I did this many, many years ago for Sirius in terms of the alignment with the belt stars. And I found that Sirius, which of course is key part of the Egyptian Osiris, Horus, Isis myth, was in a line with the belt stars 113,000 years ago, which of course puts it exactly in the middle of this migration maybe to another planet and then back to Earth that we've been trying to reconstruct. I'll do the same for Mintaka, but I'm not quite sure that uh, that's going to be the answer because to me it's the mirror imaging it's the um uh mirror uh symmetry which is very puzzling and frankly bizarre because it's the same angle it's just like you're looking in the mirror 180 degrees opposite and it's bigger those structures are much bigger than the modern version tucked over in the right hand corner uh of that little complex at the southern crater rim. Richard. Well, yes, Andrew. That's Ruggiero here. Sorry. Oh, Ruggiero, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, um, relative to my image five, uh, what position is the Jezero crater on Mars relative to longitude, latitude, uh, getting to like the 19.5 type thing? Well, uh, it's up. It's up uh, near the tip of a place that's been known historically back since Cassini first saw the first markings with a telescope in the 16th, uh, 17th century on Mars, a place called Sirtis Major. Its mm-hmm. latitude is 18.44 north. Uh, the, lo- the longitude is not really relevant. It's the latitude. <clears throat> it's 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 below 19.5. It's 18.4, I believe. Is there any uh, mirroring uh, as as in uh, the structures we see on Earth to the position of where it is on Mars? No, no, that's that's the first thing I thought of. And no, this almost looks like a a dimensional displacement. Remember, I talked about Mm. going through dimensions and it's kind of like you're in a mirror universe. Yeah, it's almost like one of those things, which, of course, is so outrageous and so Mm. off the edge of the paper that I only bring it up because we try on the show to even mention the weird stuff so that someone out there can put weird A and weird B together and come up with logical C. Richard, that one's so outrageous. It's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> the dimensional, the dimensional angle, uh, the, uh, I, I it's relatively, Jezero is relatively near to, uh, both Holden crater and, uh, Neely Fosse, which is another area. But, and both of those other areas were studied as target locations 
So maybe there's something going on with the mid-latitudes on that side of Mars. Hmm. Okay. I just was looking at maps last night, and so I, that happened to stick in my mind. I said, oh, look at how close it is to Nilly Fossey and um, Holden Crater, which, you know, I've got pictures from Holden Crater. I've been coming more and more interested in it. Well, maybe that's why. Maybe there are similarities in those places that they were choosing for targeting. Maybe. Or maybe they Other have an ancient set of documents. Look, I think NASA has been running off a list of places to visit that are almost like, um, and Andrew, you and I have talked about this before, the Stations of the Cross before yeah. Easter, where you have to visit this place and that place and that place as part of the ritual. And, of course, in the year when the physics is changing, in the year when all kinds of things are hitting the fan, in, who's making noise in the background there? I'm hearing rustling of paper or something. Uh, in the year when everything is up for grabs, suddenly we visit a crater on Mars, which has a mirror image and a duplicate of the Giza geometry. And I don't think any way, shape, or form that can be an accident, particularly when you look at the rover as totally equipped to do real archaeology on another planet, not just look for microfossils. And we've got one minute till um, the show kind of winds down. So if anybody has any pithy thoughts, now's the time. Yeah, yeah I do. And this is really out there, and it would take a, probably a bunch of shows. But what if they were looking for an ancient stargate in this in this um, crater? Okay, that's another three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd love for us to do a stargate show. Okay. Well, well, happy we... birthday, Richard. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you, guys. Yes. Yes, now I can say, too, happy birthday on the West Coast, yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we are out of show. It's literally the top of the hour on Sunday the 25th, yes. Many, many years ago on this morning, I was born at 7-something a.m. Um, but that's all they wrote for this time. My guests this morning have been Ron and Andrew and Ruggiero and Tim and Kintia and Keith. And am I forgetting anyone? Well, it's a major representation of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. Tomorrow, we're going to go kind of background to the politics. We're going to talk about masonry and ancient archives and sacred texts. And does a tiny group of people really run all of this? So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. And right now, that should have a very, very, very special meaning. Good night, everyone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.